Oh. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Weekly Manga Recap. It's October the 2nd of 2019. I am Nick, and uh, normally Chris is here with me. I'm not sure if that's if he's with me today, though, because it is Halloween month, which means that we talk about Halloweenish series on the show, horror, that kind of thing. And uh, the last couple of years, Chris has been here for those. Uh, he's sent his uh, bizarrely identical-looking compatriot in his stead. Uh, With the uh, exception of the fact that I am hideously scarred beneath this mask from when a mummy vampire struck and okay. put its mummy curse upon my face. I hide it behind this plague doctor mask, both on theme and for convenience sake. Why is it for convenience sake? Well, so people don't have to look at it and ask questions, you know? Just yeah. trying to make the world move at a more steady pace. Because no one asks. Because <laughs> no one asks any questions if you wear a plague doctor mask. Is that what you're saying? People tend to just look away and ignore you. <laughs> I've stolen a lot of supermarket candy. <laughs> hey, isn't that guy stealing stuff? No, he's wearing a plague doctor mask. Who would wear a plague doctor mask to steal candy? Clearly that's a doctor. We should just let him go about his business. <laughs> I think that there was someone suffering for the bubonic plague back there, so I think the ad business here, it's cool. Exactly. It's going to just give him some leeches and call it a day and we'll be good. All right. What are we doing, Nick? It's Halloween month. We take Halloween rec- theme rec- manga recommendations for this month. We have one for this time. Yes, it is a manga that I probably would have never read for any reason except as a recommendation for this show, specifically a Halloween recommendation. And even then, if it were placed before me among many other recommendations, I never would have picked it. Uh, it's Harem End. Now, on the surface, when you just read the premise of this, is like, okay, yeah, I could get into that. There's a kind of thing where it's like there is this uh, group of of these uh, serial killer girls who get revenge on men who have wronged women by placing themselves into this artificially created harem situation. So it's like, oh, this girl pretends to be a childhood friend of his and this girl pretends to be a to be a Sundere who's into him and stuff like that. And they just kind of surround themselves and insert themselves into his lives and uh, then when he is at a vulnerable point, when all five of them are surrounding him and they're uh, hanging out together, he's like, oh, what a fun situation I'm in with all these hot women that I that are seem to be into me. Then they kill him and just butcher him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, all right, you know, karmic justice there uh, because, you know, there's this guy who mistreats women and hey, girls surrounding me. Isn't this fun? No, and then they kill him. Uh, and then um, it just kind of gets really weird from there <laughs> it wasn't weird already it, it was already an opera like i mean that's an idea that i think you could just do a whole like series about honestly uh and much a much longer series than this was this was an eight chapter series this was enough to fill up two-thirds of a single manga volume and then it, there were other horror stories in the manga volume that the that the author uh put in with it um, which were much more interesting than the main story. 
Uh, and then there's a whole other thing that happens in this. I, I was gonna say, I feel like we're 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 talking about the harem because that's the whole thing. Harem end. The premise is <laughs> a group of girls uh, poses all the different parts of a weird harem so that they can kill people. Mm-hmm. And uh, two chapters in, the harem stops being the main. Or I guess three chapters in, the harem stops being the main part of it, and it becomes about a guy who is systematically killing all the girls in the harem. Uh, and then ends in the way all modern horror tends to, which is like, well, we need a crazy twist at the end, um, which feels like it takes away from a lot of the series. But again, we're not horror people, and I don't know why we theme an entire month around this. I, I think really what we're kind of getting at here is we need more theme months. And I don't mean weekly month recap. I mean the world. Like, why is it only <laughs> one month gets to be spooky month? Why can't there be one month that's like lava month or something like that like a super mario world you know <laughs> like, like you know like one month is like aztec jungle month or something like you can't that. just go, you just can't go down a pipe and get from desert world to lava world work like that so you, you just need to theme the months that way um but i actually so i'll say this i actually enjoyed the premise of this series a lot because it it recognizes exactly how stupid the premise is pretty quickly because one of the one of like the tenant like the tent pole harem pieces is the childhood friend and the harem is like constructed to just be around this guy so it's always just some girl who has to walk up and be like hey it's me makoto your childhood friend remember me N- not really she's like no we definitely hung out together he's like i guess and then they kill him. Like, it's always like, you just have to accept that there's like a very intrinsic part of their relationship that you just have to like crowbar in and force your way through to be like, nope, we're definitely childhood friends. That's my archetype. This is allegedly a, a horror comedy. And I could definitely uh, Allegedly, I say, because it was neither scary nor was it funny. Um, This was like kind of snuff filmy. Honestly, at certain points, it is. Yeah, there is just bodies being maimed and butchered in graphic detail. Well, get to that. But there's a lot of care taken to show first, like the first chapter that I uh, read. um, The guy gets killed and then they spend like five pages tearing his body apart and slowly ripping bits of it off so that they can flush it down the toilet uh, repetitively. Um, And the first site that I came across that had this series on it, they censor all the gore (laughs) in the first chapter. And so I just, I'm just like, huh, there's a lot of this manga is just blurred images. It was like five or six pages where 90% of it, if not 100% of it was just no mosaic images. And I couldn't see what was going on. I'm like, well, I've got to figure out what it was. And then I looked up the pages on a different site and I'm like, I shouldn't have even bothered because no. it's just, it's just so, it's so pointless. It's it's just gratuitous. Look at this guy's body being slowly ripped apart and cut apart. And it's there is a weird fascination in the series with literally just body horror kind of gore. Not stuff. even not even body horror. It this 
there's a there's a subgenre of of hentai called guro, which is literally just watching a body be butchered and people get a sexual enjoyment out of that. I it is the one it is one of the first things that I came across when I was just like, oh, oh why? You know, um, and I don't get it, um, but it seems like it is literally just there for the sake of it. Um, it's either to shock or to for people who fetishize that kind of level of violence. And it keeps on coming up and it's not really shocking or frightening or anything like that whenever violence happens in this series because the artwork is terrible. It's so amateurish and lacks so much character and detail that like literally uh, a character will be getting her arms uh, and legs broken and it's almost funny because there's so little reaction that she's giving to any of it. It takes, it gets to be like down to like her last limb getting broken before she finally goes, ah, <laughs> and that's it. Chris, I know we read Kodomo no Jikan and finished it last week. I hated that manga more than I hated this one, but this one might actually be worse. <laughs> if we're talking about like, in terms of merit that can be gained from a series, not in terms of like, you know, uh, weighing the pros against the cons, but in terms of like, is there anything positive that you can take from this? There's probably more positive you can take from Kodomo no Jikan than you can take out of this. There's just nothing good in it, honestly. <laughs> Strong words. Uh, I would disagree with that. I actually found myself enjoying this series when it actually played to its core idea because there's like, the whole idea of like this killer harem girl thing it it's an idea that's so stupid it kind of works sort of like maha sojo of the end where you're like mm -hmm. oh little fucking magical girls kill people like if they had played into it more and it's kind of a shame because the best part of the series comes like right at the end when the girl who's supposed to play the sundere character ends up like killing a bunch of people and after she's hacked them into pieces she like turns to the camera and she's like it's not like i wanted to kill you guys or anything or something like that like she just plays into the character and you're like if you had honestly done more with like the stupidity of this gimmick i could have been into it but we're we haven't brought up the fact that like the second chapter is to introduce i guess the antagonist of this series so, so the thing is Harem End is not really about the horror of you know, a guy being drawn into a harem situation of girls that actually are trying to kill him. It's actually about making people into anime in the most inefficient way possible. <laughs> it's it's so absurd. Like the premise is that there's an anime company. They get people in there. They sign them to really expensive contracts and then they drug them uh kill them drain their blood turn them into like these over-the-top kind of like uh marionette puppets that they will then like roll around on different equipment to act as like frames of animation and like it's introduced to us as a voice actress who's supposed to be doing a role it's just like wow this anime is really weird is it like stop motion or something i don't yeah, really the, get the it body, the body movements don't seem fluid at all they seem really jerky and uh unnatural What's going on? <laughs> and then the, the the twist is that 
oh, that's what they're doing, and they kill her and make her part of it. And then uh-huh. they go after the Harriman because they killed a freelancer who was working on their project. Uh-huh. And then there are just several chapters of an assassin guy killing a couple of them and uh-huh. then them getting videos sent that are the anime of the different girls in the video, which is almost kind of funny because they just, it's like, my name's Priscilla B. Boswim, and I'm a fairy girl. Oh, my head exploded. Blam, blam, blam. And it's like the end. Pretty credits, much. And yeah. you're like, yeah. So much time had to be spent fucking recording. Well, we spent all this budget on we spent all of our budget on these machine marionette things and our hitmen and <laughs> covering up the people we've murdered. That it turns out we didn't actually have enough to actually you know animate the things that we had to model the animation after. I'm like, are they are they airing the actual version of these, like, murder videos? Never, con- never confirmed. It's like, where do you get their money? For- I know it's like, it's just supposed to be a creepy, outlandish yeah. horror thing. You're not supposed to question it. It is just supposed to be weird. And there is way more effort put into imagining how like the mechanisms and the process of this, you know, um, puppeting someone's dead body around on machinery through a scene would work. Uh, Because this manga just has like a fascination with dead bodies being desecrated, essentially. And that's that's what it comes down to. So fucking many times that this series wants to go and show you the intricacies of which it marionettes these people and does its anime thing. It's like, I, I don't care. I don't care how you get their pupils to move or whatever bullshit you're going off about this time or how you fucking dolly truck a corpse around a set. Like you got your weird, creepy premise. Stop explaining it. Like, I don't know who thought that was the most interesting part. And so, I mean, it literally is just a matter of like this manga is a practice of look at what we can do with a dead body kind of thing. And you you get that impression from the very first chapter when, like I said, there's just like five or six straight pages of showing them butchering this one guy and chopping him into little bits and flushing them down the toilet and stuff. It doesn't matter anything. Nothing else in this series matters. It's all just for the sake of, you know, chopping stuff up. That's all that it matters uh, to it. So everything else in it is kind of just an excuse plot. There are little bits of it here and there that made me think that it could have been entertaining, like the hitman that goes to uh, kill the members of Harriman has some really weird lines uh, and is just a weird eccentric character in general. Um, at one point, he is a t- he is just attacking one of these girls and he refers to his attack as the punch of gender equality. It's, you know, that kind of weird shit that if it had just been all that, it'd be like, okay, I can see how this is supposed to be a horror comedy, but clearly it is all just for the sake of, and then we put the body onto this mechanical thing and it puppets around. And isn't that creepy? It's not really. And again, the artwork in it is just not good enough to carry this idea like there are these moments that I feel like should have been scary or should have been silly and I didn't get it. Um, there is so little feel for things that are happening. It's not just a matter of like it's not interesting to look at. It's difficult to follow stuff that's happening sequentially. There are moments when it'll cut to a flashback 
and I had no idea that it was cutting to a flashback until I went back and realized that the girl who was experiencing the flashback was now wearing a different shirt. Like that was the cue that I had to follow. Usually when you have that in a manga, there's like, you know, black around the panel or it's all in gray or something like that. No, it literally just transitions to another black lines on white uh, background to show this. It's just not an enjoyable series for me. And then there were there are these little stories at the end that had nothing to do with it that at the very least were way more outlandish and bizarre and at least made me go, well, that's weird. Um, and this was all stupid. So, yeah, I mean, look, I guess if you're looking for something that's weird to read, to be like, Hey, look, I'm just trying to digest as much Halloweenish content as humanly possible. Uh, this will cover up, uh, 45 minutes of your time. Uh, but outside of that, I, I, I don't think there's a ton to really like take from this. Uh, there are parts I enjoy and I still think the premise is kind of funny, uh, but it doesn't actually nail its premise as much as it should. And for whatever reason, it decided like, Hey, let's make a series about a group of harem girls who, uh, pretend to be a harem and murder people. And then like three chapters, it was like, Oh no, let's just kill them. I guess. <laughs> I guess they're the victims. I guess they're the victims in this. Yeah, I was like, it seemed like it was supposed to be kind of like uh empowerment, like female revenge story. Cause they were always going after men who have wronged women. And then just mm-hmm. systematically one by one, they're picked off and the women turn on each other. And, <laughs> and the last one who uh, is left has this is the only one who actually has like character development of any kind, because it's explicit that she's new to the group because uh, she was kind of brought in after she had been wronged by men her whole life. And so her role in the group was she was kind of the reluctant person. She didn't necessarily want to have to kill people. She didn't have the heart to go through with stuff when she didn't have someone encouraging her. Uh, And it was about her supposedly coming into her own and stuff. And also she wanted to, you know, be able to stand on her own and not have someone control her. And then uh, she ends up being turned into a puppet. So, well, yay, bleak. It's, it's worth noting the end of the series suggests everything was an anime, I think. Maybe. That the entire It's one of those things where it's like the hero wins. Hard cut. Well, guys, that was sure an exciting episode of Harem End, isn't it? And then like cuts over to all the girls and they're the marionettes. I'm like... Oh no, that was the story, but the real life part, the horror, is the only part that carried over to real life. Ah! And again, really not clear when that happened, like what was actually happening. So, yeah, didn't like it. Okay. All right, now, before we start this recap, Nick, I'm going to need you, and I'm going to need mm-hmm. everybody to... Please show me as much courtesy because as convenient as this mask is, it is super uncomfortable. So please do not jeer at my hideous face. Ah, with its vampire mummy burn marks all over its. Ah, this is like a cane thing, Chris, where like the the burns are actually mental scars. (laughs) Nick, I had sex with the cheerleader. Oh, looks, like I fucked, looks like I fucked your brains out. I mean, a mannequin dressed as a cheerleader. I'm not sure what the other one is. I think a cheerleader dressed as a mannequin is just a woman naked with a mask over her face. 
Or, or, I guess, or you know, wearing clothes that a mannequin would wear. So anything? <laughs> I suppose that also is equally as appropriate. Don't worry about it if you don't know what the hell we're talking about, guys. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, we're in a new era, guys. AEW on TNT. We don't need to talk about that dumb old WWE anymore. <laughs> All right. We're going to do the recap portion of the week of manga recap now. Stick around to the end if you want to find out when uh, Halloween series we're going to be covering next time. So, My Hero Academia, Chris. Chapter number 244, recommended reading. But, Nick! What is it, Chris? Don't you mean rec boom ended reading? Sure, why not? Um, Gotta start us off on the right foot. Oh, sorry. White foot, like a zombie white. Skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed so, it. Saved so it. Lame. <laughs> so... Uh, last time, uh, Deku and Bakugo and Todoroki had taken on the uh, hero training thing with Endeavor. But Nick! What is it, Chris? Don't I, I, you, you get one interruption per chapter. This one's worth it. Don't you mean Endevampire? That was not worth it. You could have said Endeavor. Like, what the hell's wrong with you? That one sounded better in my or head. Or Cadaver. Like... <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, people might not know. You have to know your audience, you know? Sometimes you gotta, you gotta write for the dumbest person in the crowd. (laughs) I think George Carlin said that. And uh, Shakespeare. The the one one quote that the two of them were aligned on. (laughs) You just imagine Shakespeare having his actors go up, bitch, fuck, (laughs) faggot. Yeah, Shakespeare's thing was the the five words you can't say on television, though. So it wasn't completely the same. (laughs) Also, television hadn't been invented, so no one had an idea what he was talking about. What is this weird guy talking about? Why is he he trying to act like he's a Hebrew now, too? (laughs) All right, so anyway. Thank you, phone. Endeavor rushes off to go and deal with a crisis, uh, and everyone's having to rush to keep up with him because he is so fast and he's streaking across through the air on fire and stuff. And we see that the wizard guy who showed up at the end of the last chapter has the ability to manipulate glass. So he actually goes by these skyscrapers, sucks all the windows off of them, and just forms this massive globe of liquid glass. Uh, And uh, he... Looks like he's just going to chuck it at the ground and kill some people. But fortunately, Endeavor smashes right into it and just explodes it everywhere. And I'm sure that molten glass going everywhere is not going to cause any damage to anyone whatsoever. It's going to be fine. Yep. Uh, Endeavor has got his big triumphant entrance, uh, challenges this wizard guy, and uh, who immediately just runs away. So just, just, nope, fire, that's not good. De- run, rushes down an alley with Endeavor in close pursuit. Uh, and right when he's coming out of an entrance, he shouts out to some people who are waiting in front of it. Uh, these uh, kind of scruffy looking, potentially homeless people, honestly. Uh, and uh, he runs out and they're just going to smash him with like. One guy's just got like a pipe with like a 
bend yeah. at the end of it. <laughs> it it's almost like uh, they were about to try to hit him with like hockey sticks and like a like a, a broom. Like it's like, what are you trying to accomplish here? Also, so I for- think I think the wizard guy's name is Star Servant because people in the office building recognize him and call him that. So I think the idea yeah, is that he's yeah, yeah. he's supposed to be a hero who maybe is being like manipulated or something. Possibly. He is t- saying a bunch of weird stuff that's got people shocked. Uh, so they try to attack Endeavor, but fortunately, the, the devastating attack of some guy with like a glove, and a pipe. Well, there was a guy with a knife. That could have hurt a little bit, I guess. Uh, fortunately, it's halted when Bakugo and uh, Todoroki and Deku, at least I think that Todoroki's there. I don't actually see Todoroki in this panel. Did he get there in time? Um, I would kind of suck if like he was the only one who didn't make it. <laughs> I don't see him. He's not in that panel. Maybe he's behind them. He's just kind of behind them. Oh, guys. He's like, I don't <laughs> I can't move super fast. Like your dad literally just showed you how to do it. I'm not good at the fire stuff. You like surf around on waves of ice. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> fucking Iceman, my bro. Come on now. Uh, they rush in to attack before they can even touch uh, Star Servant's servants. Hawks is there, and he's just got dealing with everyone with his feathers and stuff, uh, mopping them up immediately. And he actually apologizes to uh, Deku and the others, like, no, no, no I'm sorry, I'm just handling this way faster than you could have, and uh, disables them. And he uh, says to Endeavor, it looked like he kind of needed a bit, a bit of help. And Endeavor's like, no, I didn't. Um... Todoroki seems shocked uh, about something. Not sure exactly what. Maybe he did actually. Maybe he was actually behind all of them. I don't know. Um, Endeavor is just being his usual grumpy self. He scolds Hawks for not saying anything about, you know, hey, you're supposed to contact me when you're in town. And Hawks is like, oh, you know, I was just passing through. Uh, A bunch of people... uh, a bunch of the guys that they've uh, taken down start to ramble about a bunch of stuff. Uh, Star Servant, of course, is like, oh, that one is the root cause. His shining light beckons the dark. He's just ranting at Endeavor. Uh, the police congratulate uh, everyone. They're like, hey, no no casualties. Good job. Thanks, Endeavor. You know, you keep us safe. And uh, Hawks talks to the students for a little bit um, because he actually knows who Deku is. Uh, he identifies him as the kid who smashes up his own fingers. A little bit outdated information, but he's oh not well. wrong, though. Not wrong, no. Uh, and he talks about how uh, Tokoyami had uh, told him about uh, his classmates, and he kind of wishes that he could have worked with them again. But uh, in my down in my ha- hometown with my sidekicks, uh, that's where he is. I've got too much going on to be there, so I feel a little bit bad about it. And he. Spots Bakugo kind of glaring at him, and Bakugo's like, I was faster back there. <laughs> Clearly, you weren't. <laughs> um, and then uh, Endeavor's like, What What do you want? Why, why are you here? And Hawks takes out the Meta Liberation War book, the uh, book that he had been paging through before. And uh, he just kind of starts going on about it, uh, saying, oh, yeah, you know, this has been flying off the shelves lately. You know, it's actually really interesting. There's a lot of stuff here. And so while he's going on rambling about this, he's thinking to himself, sorry that I've got to take this approach. 
but this is the only way that I can actually make this message reach you. So I need you to actually pick up on what I'm actually trying to say. And he mentions like there are, Hey, if you've got, a, don't have much time for reading, I've highlighted the, the most important parts. Cause this outlines all this stuff. And then everyone's like, what, what are you talking about? And finally Hawk says, Hey, imagine endeavor a world where we've got time to kill, which as we get a flashback to clarify, it goes back to reference the conversation they had uh, the last time that they met where Hawk said that that was what he wanted to achieve, that kind of world. I don't know exactly how Endeavor is supposed to pick up on, hey, I've taken this book and I've highlighted some stuff so that I can have a secret coded message go through you. Uh, when he's finishes it on a comment that sounds very characteristic for him, but I'm sure we'll see. I think the idea was supposed to be that in their previous meeting endeavor was supposed to learn that Hawks is more than his personality suggests that he is more responsible and is worthy of the number two hero. And that by pulling back to that, he's supposed to get it, but I'm just kind of assuming because nothing seems super clear in this exchange. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a you know like the way the line was originally written or the exact wording of the translation or what, but yeah, it doesn't seem like I I don't follow the logic of what Endeavor is supposed to pick up on in this conversation, and maybe it'll just be flat out explained in the next chapter what you know Endeavor will think to himself like when Hawk said this, this is what I interpreted that to mean, but. Even when we get that, I'm not super confident that I'm going to be like, oh, yes, yes, of course. You know, so I don't know. we'll see how it goes, I guess. Yeah, I think it's an OK chapter. I don't have a ton to say about it otherwise, but it's all right. Yeah, that's about where I am, too. Yeah, it just it happened. There was some stuff that happened in it that I'm sure is setting up stuff that will be more interesting later. Yeah. All right. All right, Nick, let's talk about Eden Zero. Chapter 63, Taking Up the Torch. Uh, so, last time, a very important scene happened where uh, Weiss came down and fought against Baku, and it was super. It was a matchup 20 years in the making. Yeah. Once in a lifetime, John oh, Cena versus a... The Rock. Oh, Everything led up to this point. Uh, and he's naked now. So he's like, oh, I need clothes. Rebecca, let me get your clothes. I even take a skirt. I will. And Rebecca somehow spontaneously now remembers that she isn't wearing underwear because hers was stolen from her. So she gets really embarrassed. Everyone's staring. And then the one guy who looks like Scott Dawson is like, hey, uh, I know a place where you can get some clothes. <laughs> So you could go there and grab some extra ammo and everything. So before we cut away, Weiss asks, so where is Shiki and Hamor? We cut away to Shiki having his big fight against uh, Lady Kuranai and her giant mech bot. And Shiki's like, hey, what's up with this robot? I can't use my gravity power on it. I can't make it lighter. And Kuranai, uh, as a the haughty villain she is, uh basically explains ah yes i coded it with ether coating and uh it isn't explained but i guess that nullifies how ether gear works so 
He can't use his power on her. So what he'll do is he'll use it on the ground instead and make it heavier. Oh, snap. So the two of them fall through the ground and that leads straight into the labor district, um, which I guess she can do this. Is how this worked. Um, but I, well, but he's surprised when he, when he, because I, I was trying to figure out who's saying this. Because it doesn't have like a line that leads to Shiki's mouth, so I was like, maybe she is. But why would she, who's the owner of the city, not know? <laughs> but if that's the case, what was Shiki's plan if he didn't know there was a city? I don't know. Just, well, because he says afterwards, like, yeah, I'm taking you straight to Amora. But like, it's a good thing that that yes. happened then. Yeah, it's a good thing this planet is layered vertically like that, so that when you did this, that's how it works. Uh, so because well, Shiki is clearly going. Clear, Shiki clearly says there was a city under there, huh? So, um, but also she is surprised to be there. I don't know, Chris. I, I, don't, I really, I don't know who's supposed to be surprised here because I think or, they both one, are. <laughs> one way or the other, it's a little strange. Uh, so yeah, Kuranai's like, no, not this horrible place. Uh, Shiki does a couple moves to like fight against the robot, um, and he mentions. Like, he basically damages her booster so she can't just fly away. And he's like, ha, you're a lot closer to Mora now, and I'm going to make sure you get to her. And Kara and I starts off. She's like, are you expecting a touching reunion, or do you expect the girl to take her rage out on me? And Shiki says, I don't know, and I don't care, but it's what Valkyrie wanted. I'm taking up the torch. And that's actually a pretty cool line. It's one cool thing that he has done in this entire sequence in terms of, you know, caring what happens to Hamora, because it certainly wasn't, you'll be fine! Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Kuranai tries to, fight, you know, starts fighting back, and Shiki does a move where he puts all the gravity into his fist and punches, but if he punches, the, the ether coating will negate it. Or whatever. I don't know what it exactly does still. I don't know if it evaporates ether gear as soon as it touches. Anyway, he turns it off just before his fist would hit. So he crunches his fist up against the metal and, and hurts it, but his fist is all bloody. But it shows just how much he, he really, uh, you know, how much he puts into this. Uh, as this is happening, there's a conversation going on where Kerr and I is talking about, like, oh, you care what a dead machine wanted? What you think machines have hearts, feelings, love? Kids today ruining the worlds with their idealism and delusions. They're brats who refuse to face reality. Jiggy's like, do you think the adults who do face reality make the world better? And I have no idea what the philosophical argument currently going on between them is supposed to be. Like, I'm like, is Shiki's point that realists are wrong and you should just always like, I don't know what he's trying to say here. Or what she's saying, where she's like, kids today in your robots and your thingamajigs with feelings. <laughs> what am I supposed to say? And your dabbing and your on fleek and your selfies. Am, am I supposed to say hello to my toaster now? Like, I don't really know. <laughs> is a toaster a gender? <laughs> my gender is uh, brown. <laughs> is well browned. My gender is Pop-Tarts. Uh, so... She says, oh, no, I can't believe you managed to do that. And Shiki says, well, at least I'm pretty sure you're not making it any better based on everything I've seen here in the labor district. And I'm I really don't have any idea where that conversation went, but we cut away and it is wise and Rebecca and they're at this uh, facility and they're getting changed. 
And of course, there's some gratuitous fan service. But to Hero's credit, they're actually having a pretty interesting conversation because Rebecca is filling Wise in and everything that happened. And Wise asked her the question that we kind of knew Rebecca was thinking about, but she didn't want to bring up because it was like, oh, hey, the much more important thing is that Hamora lost her mother figure. And that's kind of sad. But they kind of bring up, they're like, yeah, and because of that, we don't, we're not going to be able to get beyond the cosmos, are we? Like, Yeah, what are we going to do about that? What are the, yeah. Other people on the ship were looking forward to seeing her again. Like, they're kind of addressing the larger situation at hand. Uh, Weiss even asks how Homura is doing. And Rebecca gets out of her changing station and says, I like these clues. They're easy in the moving. Can't imagine how they would be, but sure, space clothes. Uh, and she goes up and starts picking well, out. She doesn't have sleeves, I guess. I'm sure that helps. I think but... that she does have sleeves. I think it's a full body suit. Because if not, then that the way the top looks seems to indicate there's nothing... There's no support in each other. Like, I'm not trying to like, like okay. Well, the boss, but they clearly show her zipping up the top because they need to get one more shot of her boobs in before it closes. So there's clearly fabric between the black parts that cover her chest, but it seems as the seems like to me that the parts of like it the shoulders it, are bare yes okay. her shoulders That's, down to her wrists are bare i think it still doesn't feel like that'd be easy to move in but whatever again future space clothes it all works uh and happy's like hey i'm all out of ether from stuff all so, that stuff i did you every, know, remember everything remember there were those you know those unimportant guys that we shot a bunch of yeah i'm out of ether from that yeah so, so uh, she's going to just use one of the guns that are here. And then Wise is like, hey, uh, the door won't open. And that's when we see Nino come in. He's like, yeah, I locked the entrance to the armory. All the interior doors, too. We control the weapons here. And if you behave we yourself... The horizontal. We control yeah, the vertical. We. Uh, so if you behave yourself, we can avoid any... And that's when they realize, like, oh, shit, that's Rebecca. That's Nino. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like... It's my job. I'm here to prevent people from getting into the armory. And they're like, yeah, but if you do that, nobody will be able to fight. He's like, that's kind of the point about what I'm saying. I told you that I work for Madame Kerr and I, and now we have the evil and anime will save the universe line. There's a weird part of this scene, which is that the first. Okay, so Rebecca goes through the door into the armory. And it seems as though she goes in by herself because Pino is hanging out with Happy, who's lying on the ground. Uh, so. OK, well, they're separated. Hang on. I cannot tell where the four characters total are positioned in relation to each other. Clearly, Weiss and Rebecca are in separate rooms. Mm-hmm. But Pino and Happy seem to be in the same room as Rebecca, I think think yes but they might be in different rooms altogether but there are no establishing shots that show rebecca happy and pino to be in the same room together but when rebecca starts talking to nino there are points where it looks like pino is in the same room as them pino is there's a shot at the end of the chapter that shows the two of them together it's not super well framed but yeah rebecca was in one of the changing rooms why is it another one uh, the other two were inside the armory main room. Rebecca comes out, and then Nino comes in. But yeah, that's it's not particularly well-framed to 
get that point across. Not like it matters. Pino's just there to be another there. voice in the yeah. room to carry on the conversation. Uh, Rebecca is saying, you know, like, how can you do this? You're hurrying innocent people. You know, I, I, I trusted you. What are you doing? He's like, hey, I, I don't make the rules. I'm not going to defy Madame Kerr and I. If it comes down to this, it comes down to this. You know, looks like I have no choice. And he activates his power, which seems to summon like giant fists behind him. He's like, I am the fist of heaven and I'm going to take you down. Apparently they're cybernetic ether arms. And oh, no. I hope that uh, Pino doesn't activate her uh, EMP and uh, stop him cold. Well, she can't do that because then Rebecca's guns wouldn't work. And I guess then so would just punch her to death. I don't really know. <laughs> I'm sure they'll come up with an explanation next uh, next chapter. I'm actually all right with this setup because it's like, hey, you know, we've these two two characters have actually had something going on between them. So, um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, like, I don't know, witch comes in and, and fights instead. <laughs> Just, <laughs> but hey, we've had you know a lot of interaction between these two characters, and we've seen that yes, you know, Nino is very upset with some of the way the way some of the stuff is uh, unfolding. But clearly he is still at this moment uh, on Kurenai's side, despite the fact that he did help Rebecca earlier. So, hey, you know, we don't really know how that uh, conflict is going to unfold at this point. So there's actually some interesting stuff going on. And see, see, Hero, this is how all of your fights could be. If you just take a bit of time to establish what the fuck is up with the, with your you know antagonists instead of just having Shiki punch them and then immediately defeat them. Yeah. So. So I, I like this chapter a lot. Um, I think it's it's super cool and fitting, like dragging Kur and I down into the labor district. Uh, Cheeky making the stance of like, hey, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm bringing you here to her more because that's what Valkyrie mm -hmm. wanted all along. Um, and it kind of also helps to like make it cool that it's like it's not really Shiki beating Kur and I. This is more Shiki versus Kur and I's robot that then we could actually presume we have a confrontation between just Hamora and Kur and I doesn't have to be a fight, but that's like what we're kind of actually getting towards. Um, I like that. We're having this Nino Rebecca fight. Uh, I like that. Wise is like locked in a room right there. Kind of creates this tension and stakes like mm -hmm. he's nearby, but he can't get there and you feel kind of vulnerable for Rebecca. Cause she's kind of worthless in every other scene she's ever been in. <laughs> so I'm like, can she possibly survive? Um, I think this has been a well-written arc. In the big points, it's all the connecting tissue that's just been really badly executed. Uh, and then the philosophical thing between Shiki and Kuro and I, I really don't understand what was going on. Maybe it's just kind of a badly translated discussion, but that's sort of strange. But otherwise, I really like the chapter. Hmm. All right. Uh, we're going to go into uh, Mission Yozakura family now. But, Nick! Uh, what is it, Chris? Don't you mean Mission Bozubora? No. So did you try and do two boos in that one word? <laughs> yes, there's a lot. Of <laughs> Boo is very flexible. <laughs> Mission six, flower bin delivery headquarters. So uh, Tayo is just at this like flower delivery area. With Kyoichiro, uh, he's just put a chokehold on some guards and and uh, disabled them. And uh, he's reacting in shock, like, why are we already at Hanawa's hideout if they're not doing the drop-off for, like, another few days? And uh, 
Kyoichiro explains that in the time between when they're doing the drop off and when uh, and now they've got to actually make Tayo be an actual top rate spy. So it's weird that they're like, yeah, we're just going to you know, use our actual targets to train you. But that's what they're doing. Uh, and in order to do that, he is having uh, Tayo. He's basically puppeting him with his uh, steel strings. And in this way, he's like, you know, I'm going to have your body memorize these movements that have to do with, you know, uh, martial arts and using weapons and stuff like that. Uh, and then he has some dance around like a weirdo for a bit um, just to be silly. Uh, and uh, Kyoichiro is like, yeah, I know the handoff is three days from now, but um, we're not going to wait until then. So, yeah. Uh, he also says that there's no reason to hold off on infiltrating this area because they know that Mutsumi is no longer on the premises. So, why not? You know, we've got all these goons here that we can beat up uh, with you and then uh, we'll do it. Cool. Uh, and he s- says that, you know, our objective is just to capture the terminal. Uh, there is a cargo distribution data that's put into this terminal that only the top brass have access to and they have to keep to grab it. And they already have the infiltration routes, the security. Uh, they've got an escape route ready. They just need this data that's on this one terminal and they'll be able to do it. Uh, if they fail, Mutsubi will be much more difficult to get back. Uh, and if Tyre is responsible for them screwing this up, I will take one slice out of you each day her rescue is delayed. And immediately Tyre's just thinking like, wouldn't I just be killed on the first day? Yes, presumably. Tayo gets puppeted around some more. Uh, he gets he's put into infiltrate the area. There's a little bit where he like zaps them with a sh- with a stun gun um, in order to disable these guards' communications. Uh, there's a bit where they he allows a guy to stab him because he's got this uh, blade resistant clothing in order to get a strike in. Um, and uh, then Tayo's like, "Look, I'm just." Look, you're pushing my body way past this limit. I need I need a break. So he just injects him with doping, uh, this doping stuff to keep him going. Um, and then we get to the actual big moment because Tayo is actually left to do stuff on his own for a bit. You know, this is his test uh, to see if he's actually a top rate spy. And so he starts infiltrating this uh, this area. He knocks out one of the guards and sneaks back some more. Uh, but then he hears this little girl crying out from this box that she's just being locked inside of because they've, they've got another hostage there. And uh, so Tayo was thinking to himself, like, if I move from where I am right now, then we're not going to be able to find out where Mutsumi is. So he's got to choose between saving this innocent person and getting his wife back. But he hears the little girl calling for her big brother and he remembers his own dead little brother. And so he just springs into action, uh, knocks out one of the guards, fights off one of the other ones. The guy's term, the terminal that they're after goes flying through the air from one of the guards hands. And he has to break the biometrics authentication in order to prevent the alarm from going off. Uh, so the only way to prevent the alarm from going off is just to shock it with the stun gun, uh, which he does. More guards show up. Kyoichiro comes out from where he's hiding and disables them all with his steel cables. And he scolds Tayo for losing his composure and and basically taking his eye off the prize. And he says, look, 
I know you did technically a good thing by choosing to try and save this person, but you have to also consider your duty as a spy and consider the repercussions of your actions. Are you willing to accept the responsibility of losing your chance to find Mutsumi? And Tayo is regretful of this, but he pulls the little girl out of the box. She gives, she gratefully gives him a hug. And uh, Kyoichiro starts communicating to uh, Shion, uh, saying, like, we're going to switch to plan D, so get in touch with the Seeker. Tayo starts to apologize for screwing things up, but the little girl sees the ring on his finger and says, this is the same one that that girl had who got to the flower car. And so the chapter ends with Kyoichiro asking if they can tell her a bit more about what she's talking about. It's not as good a chapter as the previous one. There's it seems to be this kind of thing that keeps on happening where it's like Tayo's not a good enough spy yet, but here's some cool stuff that you can do. And it's a little difficult to keep track of how good or how bad he is, honestly. But the main point of the chapter was to actually show like, hey, you know, this is the type of person that Tayo is outside of just his position in this family. I do like the callback to this is why this character was the way that it was in the very beginning of the series. Uh, and also I like that, you know, it's a simple enough idea. The shonen hero is rewarded for being a good person, uh, and making the right decision, even if it wasn't the smartest decision, but I liked it. Um, but I don't know. It's kind of, it, it was hard to like draw a conclusion on this chapter as a whole for me. And I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, I do like this chapter for the most part. Uh, I really like kind of the character like growth or maybe not growth, but the more we kind of see now out of the uh, the older brother whose name I, I cannot remember. Kyoichiro. What was it? Kyoichiro. But Nick, don't you mean Kyoichiro? It was all the setup. <laughs> yeah, I didn't give a fuck about his character in this chapter. It was okay, though. I liked the chapter for the most part. <laughs> Fucking asshole. <laughs> Halloween is about pranks too, I think. Tricks and tricks. I'm, I'm not sure entirely. Oh boy. Alright. Let's go on to Samurai 8, the tale of Hachimaru. Did the whole title there so you can get your thing in, Chris. You don't have any? Alright. Not chapter right now. <laughs> Yeah, a little wait uh, for the cool down period to <laughs> It's all about comedic. Chapter 20. Timing! <laughs> Boom! Nailed it! <laughs> so last time, Hachimaru had his sparring session with Ryu, the mysterious two samurai soul samurai. Uh, and he managed to get a point on him by cutting his own hand off and cutting his own head off. It was a little weird. We see the score changes so that Hachimaru is now only losing 32 to 1. And then he's got to be like, um, what do I do now? Because his head is just, you know, lying 20 feet from his body. So, uh, meanwhile, Dharma, I guess, is just like, what happened? I'm blind, so I don't know what happened. So he's got to have data sent to him. I don't know, like... this seems inconsistent in terms of like he's like the greatest fighter we've seen in the series so far. It doesn't seem to have any trouble when he's actually fighting people. But I guess when he's doesn't have his samurai stuff active, he's just, you know, a blind cat. So he's got a I don't know. Is he? I don't even remember that being a thing. He's blind. Right over my head. 
the last time I think it really got brought up was when he was talking about Anne's name. So anyway, uh, speaking of Anne, she rushes over to Hachimaru to help him out because, you know, he's like, well, I'll never catch up to Ada if I don't push myself to my limit. Uh, and Dharma's like, oh, oh, I see what, what you didn't know. OK, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was a clever idea, but um, don't do that again. Because if you don't have someone to actually, you know, put your head back on your body, then you'll really be screwed. And he explains that the way that the regeneration ability of a samurai works is that the core that everything grows out from is the head. So it's a piccolo thing. As long as your head is intact, then you can regrow everything back. But um, regeneration also means that uh, if you, you attach the cut off parts backed onto the body, then just the space in between them needs to be regrown as opposed to growing an entire limb or in the case of what Hachimaru just did growing an entire body from the neck down. Important information to have. Uh, Ryu's like, but Nick, don't you mean Ribu? Okay. You really no. All right. Um, he actually seems to take a little bit of a liking to Hachimaru after he did something really stupid like this. Um, but then they ask him, like, why do you have two samurai souls? And he's like, what are you talking about? You've got two. Well, I don't know. How do you, do you change the blade shape? I don't know. I just do. Who's your teacher? What's a teacher? It's a very, very interesting guy. This uh, this Ryu. Just, what is that? You know, just do it. Just, I don't know. I don't know. Just do it. Where'd you yeah. learn it? Well, yeah. what, what do you mean learn? <laughs> What is what is a learn? What am words? What do, uh, Hachimaru also wants to know why the hell Ryu is hanging out with Kotsuka because he's clearly a jerk. And uh, Ryu's like, no, nah, he's, he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, and then Kotsuka is immediately like, you hear that? I'm a good guy. Princess, go on a date with me. And she's like, no. Fascinating. Um. But they pretty much established, like, yeah, Ryu's got amnesia. He does not remember who the hell he is, where he came from, all that stuff. Um, and he says, like, hey, you know, everybody's got a secret or two they want to keep anyway. People don't just blab their life story to everyone they meet, whether they remember any of it or not. And Hachima remembers, oh, yeah, I lied to Anne about who I was and all that stuff. And then Kotsuko's just like, plus, sometimes you want to forget things. I'm a much deeper character than I appear to be. Can you tell? Can you tell? Like, oh, I guess there is a character there. Mm. Uh, they take a break from practicing because once you've cut your head off, there's no real point to going on for a bit. Then uh, Kutsuka, as uh, they go off, as the others go off to have lunch, he says to Ryu, like, hey, you know, don't get too attached to them, Ryu, because they might turn into our enemies. But also, if they get killed by the locals, we can just take all their stuff. We can just betray them, right? <laughs> we just betray them and steal all their things. And then we get an establishment that not only does Ryu have, you know, like, no memories, he doesn't know what winking means. So... I don't think he understands what anything seems. He doesn't to be, understand unless anything. it's like slicing because he doesn't seem to understand what like betrayal means, like concepts. Even he's like, <laughs> just imagine like they're eating food together. He's like, "Coats go. What does backstab them and take their stuff mean?" <laughs> he's like, "They have indigestion. Does that mean we should take their stuff?" Like, no, I don't. <laughs> what are you talking about, buddy? Is this the moment of betrayal? Now is this the time that we turn on them? <laughs> is this how this works? <laughs> Um, they arrive at the planet 
uh, there are these huge grooves on the planet. And uh, it turns out that every time that this fighting festival occurs, that they just carve them into the planet to mark them and let people know where it's happening. Seems like a dick move. They destroy the planet afterwards. What yeah, the hell? they basically super terraform it so that they can be like, this is where the fight's happening, guys. So, um, then it turns out basically because they land on the planet and we see cut to some like, you know, of the organizer and they look all scary and stuff. And, uh, and uh, once uh, Dharma's ship lands, uh, the like the shield pops out over the entire planet, trapping them inside. Counters appear next to the three samurai in the group. It's a number 1572. A bunch of samurai try to ambush them. Uh, they destroy all of them. Just bah, 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 bah. Uh, they're all cut down uh, immediately. And the counter ticks down to 1567 after they've defeated all five enemies. And so we learn that the nature of this fighting festival is not like a really uh, organized tournament. It is a battle royale, which means it's a really overrated movie. Uh, and they are going to fight until only one is left standing. Dun, dun, dun. And oh, no, we've already been learned that... Uh, two of the members of this group are planning on betraying the others if the opportunities should arise. So, oh, it's a, it's a, is, are we, you and Kotska going to actually join the group or are they going to turn traitor on them? And w- w- is this where Dharma has to die? Oh no. Cause only one samurai can leave the planet. Duh, duh, duh. Yeah. So the premise is actually kind of interesting. Like we're getting this tournament arc that's kind of setting up here. And I think it's kind of interesting because we've spent the last couple chapters kind of establishing these relationships. And yeah, as you mentioned, like there's clearly a setup thing where the guy who's not Ryu, which I think kind of tells you how much I care about his character is I only identify him as not being the interesting part of that two person combo. He's, he's saying up to like, act like he's going to betray them. And that's fine. Like it sets up that there's different dynamics within this tournament arc and based on the nature of this being a shonen manga, we kind of presume that Tachimaru will be the one to get to the end of this. But it's like, what happens with Daruma? Like, you could easily say that they get down to like five and they choose not to betray each other and then they just go beat the bad guy or something like that. But maybe it does just get to one end. It's like Daruma has to get, you know, uh, incapacitated by a stronger opponent that then Hachimaru has to face. And maybe initially they do have like a big showdown with the other two guys, but then it ends with like kind of a respectful fight between Ryu and Hachimaru mirroring them, having all these duels together. Like it's a real fight between them, you know, maybe out of respect or maybe it does come down to like a tense moment. I I don't know. There's a lot of different ways you could take this. So I think the potential for this being a really exciting fight is there. Um, And I'm I'm optimistic. I should say, I I think the last couple chapters of Samurai 8 have been better than they were so i'm i'm some i'm somewhat optimistic for where this could go Mm. we shall see all right let's talk about we never learned nick Nick. uh Mm -hmm. chapter question sorry question 129 after slushy shenanigans they go closer to a pizza bet uh so uega has returned home he has his foot is injured 
but they took him out to the hospital. That was that was enough drama for one for uh, for a while, Chris. Let's. Uh... <laughs> we gotta have some uh, sexy winter shenanigans in the way that only we never learned could have. Uh, the three main girls are at Uega's house, being like, "Where's Uega? We're here to try to nurse him back to health." And they're like, uh, he's seen a doctor. And then uh, <laughs> Asumi and uh, Kirisu show up. They they brought him back from the clinic, you know, presumably Asumi's clinic. And uh, uh, Kirisu drove them over. Uh, and they're like, hey, he you, you actually isn't super duper injured. Turns out it's just a sprained ankle and he should be fine. Uh, I do like that. the comment that they have right before that where... Um... Because uh, Uiga tries to thank them for escorting him back home. And then he goes, Bleh! and then Kirisu says, I'm glad I drove you home if you're feeling so queasy. <laughs> Which is because she tries like a maniac. Yeah, it's, she's just this monster behind the wheel. Uh, so, you know, they, they basically, he's like, oh, I'm sorry for worrying everybody about everything. And they're like, hey, you know, it's all fine because it looks like Ogata and Firmino both did really well. Uh, and they're like, but how did you do? And there's like a moment of silence. And then he gives a thumbs up. So everyone's celebrating. Um, I don't know if we're supposed to think that there's anything more to that than just like, he did it. Or if it's like, he didn't say anything. So maybe he's hiding. I don't, it feels weird that they set up that there was like a makeup date. And then presumably it's not going to be used at all for anyone. So I don't think it was a makeup date. I think it, I believe it was. This is the first of two tests that they have to take. Oh, okay. So, uh, Aruka's interjects is like, "Oh, can I ride in your car sometimes? It looks like you're really super cool. Ah, very excited about it." Uh, Karasu's like, "Well, I guess I should get going." And then Asumi hits her in the face with a snowball and is like, "You should be more honest, shouldn't you?" And Kirisu's like, grow up, will you? And throws a snowball. Mrs. Kirisu hits Ogata straight in the face. And everybody starts having a wacky snowball fight. As you wake up. I little... do love Ogata's uh, just immediate like, war! <laughs> <laughs> soldiers! Uh, so Uega and his little sister watch on. And Uega thinks to himself like, wow, this is a pretty beautiful sight. You know, it's all my friends hanging around having fun. And Asumi's like, what are you staring at, you perv? And he's like, what are you talking about? Just an innocent snowball fight. And then I don't know how it happened. I don't they, know how. They, I don't they, know how. This is very confusing uh, as a page in general. They, they sexualize a snowball fight, which I've never like a squirt gun fight. Sure, I can get it. Pillow fight. Absolutely. Maybe the sexiest thing in the world. I've never like seen a snowball fight. And I'm like, that's hot. So, like, Snow's getting inside their clothes, and they're, like, opening their clothes up, and they're like, oh, no, my butt's all wet. You can see through my pants. Like, it's, like, it's a very strange thing to sexualize. Like, I understand the first part. You know, some of the snow slips down and ends up getting into Kirisu's cleavage, so she's get taking her skirt off to try and get it out, and, oh, she exposes her, her boobs. Then there's Fumino, and she, like, I don't know, sat in some snow weird, so there's a wet spot spot right on her butt i get that i don't know what's going on with ogata at all like i just see it and i'm like how is that sexual is it because you can barely kind of maybe a little bit see up her skirt and therefore see her tights i have no idea 
So I don't even know what was being sexualized, let alone how it came to be sexual. So I, I, I have no idea. It is a very strange circumstance, uh, but uh, that's what happens. Uh, I do oh, like Asumi's reaction because Yui goes like gets embarrassed, and she's like, "Oh yeah, an emotional moment, a huh? beautiful <laughs> moment." Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and I like kind of feel for Uega, where it's like it wasn't not supposed to be. I wasn't doing something dirty and you caught me i really did genuinely think it was a beautiful moment that somehow got really perverted <laughs> it's it was like what a beautiful shot and then like one of the girls like oh my god my top just fell off and he's like no no you're taking it from me my innocence <laughs> uh the mom's like oh what have you done uh all of you inside right now and karasu Firmino nagata have to take a bath together because they're the ones who got all wet uh, with snow. And uh, they're in the bath. And uh, I guess because of symbolism and they are nude and thus exposed, they decide to expose their feelings abruptly to Kirisu with absolutely no provocation. Like, there's no lead into this. Uh, the two of them kind of just turn. Actually, they don't. Yeah, they, they make a look at each other. They hang, they bow their heads, then they raise them up, steeled with resolve, to thank Kirisu for driving Uega everywhere, and to apologize for thinking that she was really cold and uh, uh, uncaring previously when they were being, like, when they were being guided by her as a counselor. Uh, so Kirisu's like, you know, uh, at a time, I thought that's what I was supposed to do. I thought it was my duty as a teacher to guide people on the path that which they had the most talent for and i pushed my views on others including you two but others have helped me understand that i was wrong and you two were living proof so i'm the one who owes you an apology so all three of them have made up and uh the hatchet is buried and uh then they're going to have some very good delicious food uh you wake up eat some food and uh Ashumi is trying to make a joke out of it she's like you're awfully quiet are you perving out again but he's just so glad that there's delicious food as he's also watching the three of them bond and he's like i'm just so happy uh and ogata and Firmino fight over i don't know what it is i don't really care they fight over some giant hot thing and they're like i want to give this to kirisu no i want to give it to kirisu and they both drop it and i don't i can't fathom how this is physically possible but they drop it in such a perfect way that it slides right down her cleavage which is really impressive because uh if you look at her top and her like shirt underneath it it's like entirely covering her cleavage and then in the panel where uh it the food slips down her cleavage all of a sudden it's like 90 percent exposed it just so the food drops and then the sex pervert god of the world was just like, eh, <laughs> pull that down so it'll slip down there. <laughs> gotta gotta expose those girls to the world, why don't you? Uh, and that is pretty much how the chapter goes. <laughs> oh, that's the end. The of chapter it. ends with Kirisu's cleavage getting burned. Uh, yeah, like they kind of note that, like, oh, that's gonna hurt. No, that's gonna be fucking horrifically painful. Like yeah. it. It's it's literally steaming hot from the art we can see, and it's caught between her breasts, which I don't know, 
But I have to imagine that's a pretty painful place to have burned. Like, like, the closest thing I can think of is like, oh, man, what if, like, the inside of your thighs got burned? Like, something that's constantly rubbing up against the other thing that's also burned. That sounds horrible. So, um, it's weird that it's, like, a fan servicey joke because I'm like, well, that just looks horrifically painful. Like, if I was her, I'd be furious. I'd be like, fuck you, kids. I'm expelling you. I don't think I have that power, but I'm going to do it. It's weird that this is one of the two inappropriate fan service during an emotional moment uh, chapters this week. It's the worst of the two next to Eden Zero. And yet, altogether, those two chapters are some of the better ones this week. <laughs> anyway. Yep, there we go. That's that's we never learned this week. All right. Dr. Stone. Uh, it is chapter Z equals 123, Brain Battle Gambit. Uh, last time, Gen had decided that, uh, well, not decided, but he had a moment of like, someone's got to convince Moe's in order to get him on our side. Oh, wait, that's me. Uh, and so he starts that in this chapter, and he, he does a little bit of his illusionist stuff, casts out some flower petals everywhere, and Senku causes the... Uh, the drone prototype to fly up in the air and Moe's gets really shocked by all the stuff that they're doing. And so Gen's like, oh, look at this. You know, we could make our sorcery bird fly wherever we want. We could snag Kirisame's petrica- petrification weapon from the air. And of course, Senko's like, obviously the guy's, you know, fibbing at this point. We haven't perfected it yet. It's not stable. And again, you know, just kind of mentally thinks to himself, ah, but when you make a weak card out to be the ace of spades, that is my opening move in this gambit. And uh, so everyone's like, like, all right, oh, it's down again now. We've got to bet everything on his ability to, to you know, smooth talk Mo so that we can get him on our side. And uh, there's an odd little panel of like, Gen's just gone from where he was previously. He's just appeared next to Mo's like, hey, you know, you should ally yourself with us. You can be a ruler. Yay. And he, we get like a series of like manipulation techniques that Gen is kind of going over to the reader as he employs them on Mo's. One of them being like, if you're facing the same direction as someone, then they are more inclined to feel close to you and feel a sense of solidarity. Um, so then we get another one, which is that Gen basically deliberately, uh, says something slightly off. So that way the person will be, will feel compelled to correct you, but that way they're actually, you know, you have a back and forth going. And the way that he does this is by saying to Mo's like, you know, you're really strong. I'll bet even if Ibarra and his soldiers combined all their might, you'd still be elf. 1.5 it looks like l5 because of the decimal point times as strong as them right and he's like well no that's not nearly strong enough to so, look i don't think you understand how awesome i am and how sexy and how humble i am uh so he kind of, you know, he starts talking, but then he just kind of glares at again. Not even really get, glares, just kind of like looks at him really dismissively for a second. And Gen gets starts to feel really uneasy uh, as he's looking at him. And uh, Mo says, "Should I slaughter all of you, or should I kill Ibar instead?" Hmm. I could kill you at any time, so there's no harm in you know in explaining. 
and uh, he says, like, yes, the mastermind who petrified the master was Ibarra. He played his role well, and I applaud his efforts. But it's about time for the old man to give it up and die. Besides, I want to fuck every girl in the hair. Yes. It's very important that he establishes. Listen, my motivations are very selfish. <laughs> I'm getting really strong Aegon vibes from this character. <laughs> Not just like the the dreadlocks and everything, but I'm like the character is like right down to a T, like so overwhelmingly selfish and self absorbed with his uh, his ideas. Um, so Senku points out, why don't you just murder Ibarra then and then just rule the harem or whatever? And Mo says, I would have if not for that weapon, because Kirisame is holding on to it. She's not weak. I could probably beat her in a fair fight, but since I have no way to guard against the petrifying flash, she's got the upper hand. And so they break this down saying, like, okay, so what would happen if you tried to attack the minister is that Kirisame would come at you with a weapon, not knowing the truth about the master. Uh, and if you revealed the truth to everyone, you would just lose the easy access to the harem you currently enjoy. So you're kind of caught in this situation. And that's why you've been waiting this whole time for an opportunity to arise. And of course, we get an establishment of Taiju doesn't understand this. It's very important that we understand that, Ta- that Taiju doesn't understand Because this. Taiju is me, the audience. I'm an idiot, too. <laughs> so uh, Senku points out, well, in this case, you know, our interests are aligned. And so, and Gen points out, yeah, yeah, see, we want the weapon. And uh, so, you know, a good deal should be fair and equal. So, you know, Mose, you just want control of the island and the harem. That's plenty, right? We're happy to use our sorcery to lend you a hand. But then we just want the petrification weapon. We demand it. That part is non-negotiable. And everyone for a minute is like, um, this is, he's going to like, you know, really upset him if he does this but Moe just glares down again and is like why should I honor your condition I'm the mightiest one here I set the terms you will put your sorcery work to, to work for me and give me the weapon and immediately again it's like oh, that's not fair that's unreasonable and, and Moe's just kind of boss him on the head he's like I'm keeping keep an eye on you guys you have no choice but to obey me here but then we see that this is exactly what Gen wanted. This was his third manipulation technique. Basically, he just, you know, made Moe's defend one thing that he wanted and completely overlooked the fact that originally he was just trying to decide whether to kill them all right here as opposed to setting the terms for them working together. So, hooray, Gen has succeeded. And uh as Moe's leaves, in fact, uh, Soyuz takes him off in uh, the canoe. Uh, we have a little bit of narration from Gen as uh, Senku hands off another communication device to take him away. Gen saying, the key to winning a gambit isn't to beat down your opponent. Instead, what I managed here was to pave a deceptive, flowery path forward. So Moe's leaves. He's on their side, at least for now, and immediately as once he's gone, Gen just collapses to the ground, all stressed out. Oh, God. It's so scary. Oh, Jesus. But everyone gives him a congratulatory pat on the back. And uh, we get a little caption that says, Mose has joined the party for now. Uh, and immediately they, you know, they, I mean, they get back to work. Uh, Yuzuriha keeps on assembling statues and stuff. Uh, Kaseki keeps on doing his crafts work. Uh, they make a little costume for uh, Moe's so that he can pretend to be a an invader attacking the 
forces of the petrification kingdom. Uh, but Senku specifically says to him as he communicates this, don't kill them. We need them to s- alive to spread the word about how strong you are. And uh, we see Moe's putting this plan to effect. And he's got, you know, a little symbol of the kingdom of science on his shoulder. Got this big badass black cape and cowl. Uh, he looks kind of, it's kind of like a a bit of a bit Arabian inspired with the pants and the cloak and stuff. Looks really cool. And uh, we get a note of like him saying, like, oh, it's already done. Oh, wait, they can't hear me. And that's that's the end of the chapter. So I um, I wonder who made the costume for him. Yuzuriha. Don't you mean Yuzuri blah, make blah, like a vampire, blah, blah. <laughs> Eventually, your setups are going to be more, more obvious to me. I've walked straight into two of them so far. So. I just don't remember the, the, true, I just don't remember the brother's name. The true spirit of Halloween. Um, nah, I think this is a fun chapter. Uh, it's interesting to see how we get these sort of like matchups when mm. it's not a sports series or something like that. Something yeah. like football where you're like, oh, they're directly fighting each other. So it's cool the way this one was kind of carried out with Gen showing off these different mental tricks and seeming like he was pushing too hard. And then that relief like that, it, like the moment of like, I got him when he, he gets bopped. Yeah, it's like I did it. I, I got what I was looking for. So it's it's super cool there. I like the way this is going. And this this arc is kind of leading towards a conclusion that I'm pretty, pretty excited about. Mm. Everything's kind of coming up roses right now for the Kingdom of Science. So. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering uh, what other uh, obstacles they're going to actually have to overcome at this point. Yeah. So. All, All right. right. Nick, let's talk about Seven Deadly Sins, Chapter 327.5. Side story The King Sings Alone. And this yeah, chapter, you didn't know that you were gonna we were gonna get a Gaiden all of a sudden, did yeah. you? <laughs> well, we got one of these when Gauther had his little like side story thing. Mm-hmm. So I guess this kind of makes sense. So this one is all about Escanor or Escanar. Uh but me! Don't you mean <laughs> Escanor Pinder, comma John director of the Halloween movie? Escanarpenter, comma John. It took a while for me to put it all together. <laughs> it's a that's a that's a on the way Homer. <laughs> You're gonna think about it on the way home. Be like, I got that one. Ah, it was actually brilliant. That was <laughs> not best, stupid at all. <laughs> that was the best one I've ever heard. <laughs> um, so we start with this image of a woman named Rosa who is. Helping Escanar presumably escape through a barrel. We don't really know the entire context of that scene, but we find out pretty soon after this what this is all about. Uh, and this is the backstory chapter of Escanar, showing him being arrested for terrorizing the countryside, uh, being basically exonerated by Melodius by saying, like, hey, let him, I'll take charge of him. He could join my team. Um, it's kind of nice seeing like this flashback because you get to see, like, oh, right. Gauther used to wear a giant suit of armor to pretend he was this giant strong dude or something like that. And King it used was to always... really weird to see the the disguise things after so long mm-hmm. uh, with them as we currently know them. So, so there's a lot of little silly points like that. Um, a lot of fun. Bond's kind of poking fun at the fact that Escanor looks really puny. Uh, everyone kind of asks, like, "Hey, what do you? What could you do?" Um, 
like, well, here's what I could do. Here's all my things. And eventually you're like, oh, hey, it's Merlin, the most powerful wizard in Britannia. And uh, she is wearing an obscenely sexy dress. I don't someone I feel like should have been like, hey, can you dress down a little bit? You're really making the rest of us look bad. Like, come on. Gouther's wearing like his ugly ass suit of armor and you're wearing high heels. I don't know why you float everywhere. It's not like it does anything for your physique wearing them. when You're just going to fly everywhere. Really? High heels by themselves are sexy, aren't they? No. <laughs> Some people would violently disagree with you that uh, on that one. Sorry, my, my mistake. I'm just I'm saying that in general, the appeal of high heels is, yes, like you say, the way that it forces a woman to stand and walk. So. Uh, so. Escanar starts like having like a heartbeat he's like oh i i love this one she looks just like rosa and they're like have you met this guy he's like oh yeah we met him because we found out there was some crazy super strong guy like wandering around so we wanted to meet him he was kind of a dick <laughs> yeah. yeah he laughed at us and turned us away uh and i do like that there's one moment where king floats by he's like do you like big girls Escar's like uh not in particular he's like you pass <laughs> solely concerned with with just banging diane Tur- turns out that even a decade ago king was really obvious <laughs> uh so there's a big party to celebrate him joining the team uh you know melodius even says like at last all seven members are together uh which i don't think was ever like a like a prophecy or anything like that. I think he was just like, ah, we're just going to kind of do the seven deadly sins thing. So we need seven members or else it's stupid. So now we got all of us. Together. <laughs> we got to meet the, we got to, you know, do the branding. He's <laughs> like, if you hadn't joined, we were just going to put, we we're just going to tape a couple knives to a dog and have it run around and be like, Oh no, the dog sin of knife or whatever, you know? So I'm kind of glad we don't have to do that. Uh, but uh, I should note, because I guess this is technically important. Uh, when they ask what his specialty is, Escanar says poetry, um, which I can't remember ever really coming up before. No. Nope. only comes up because he leaves the group in the middle of the night, and as he's leaving, he's narrating poetry he's written about the scene to himself or just narrating fitting poetry to himself. I'm not entirely certain if he wrote this or he's just remembering it, but it seems very apropos. But Merlin's there, and she's like, oh, is this the poetry power of which you spoke of? And like, oh, what are you doing? Uh, He's like, well, I have to leave, because you've seen my cursed form, and I'll only end up hurting all of you if this happens. You know, I I lose all reason during the day, and I I, I never should have been born. You know, I should have died back then. And uh, Merlin has a smile, and she's like, you're really a very interesting man. He's like, no, I'm serious. Uh, and then uh, it starts to become daybreak. I guess he waited until, like, as close to fucking dawn as humanly possible to leave out, because they've had, like, a two-minute It took them too long to pass out drunk, Chris. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's it's immediately dawn, and he, he starts getting larger. And I do like the way this is drawn, as you see him just slowly get taller and taller and melodius has shown up and he's like well why don't we test out that strength he's like you shouldn't joke about that he's like what do you mean i'm not a kid and beskar's like i'm warning you stop where you are and turn back now because if you come one step close to me i can't guarantee you'll live and melodius is like tee here's my one step <laughs> 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 just, 
this. Gennard just sla- like it's Bond coming out. He's like, oh man, what a great night. Oh, I just get slammed by Melodius. He went flying. I should not laugh so much at such a small person being battered so hard. It's just great of him being such a fucking cocky shit, too. Like, teehee, there's my one step. Flap! Talk shit, get hit. <laughs> Uh, so Eskinar runs away because he's like, ah, what have I done? My, my, my curse has hurt people. Ah, and he runs up to a giant mountain and just starts smashing the shit out of it. He's like, ah, somebody, anybody stop me, stop me and put an end to this life. And he's saying that with a smile on his face. And then we cut to nighttime and we see that he has just punched this mountain into like a toothpick of what it once was basically. And uh, Merlin shows up and is like, you know pretty inefficient way of dealing with your strength but it's pretty handy for cultivating the land you know like this is pretty convenient he's like well how did i even get here walking across this ragged land in these high heels (laughs) (laughs) it must be magic (laughs) uh he's like well that's why i've lived isolated from everybody you know the moment i try my hardest to my strength for people they get scared they run away and i've always been alone it's like this cursed power and she's like, well, why don't we work together to find the key to controlling it? He's like, it it's not enough that you fucking look like her. You have to act exactly like her, too. You're the you and Rose are the only people I've ever met. And your eyes are lonely, too, just like hers. Mm. And uh, she's like, uh, he says, thank you. But I have no right to do that now. I have blood on my hands Two, you know, the blood of two. So. And they're like, well, who have you killed? And it's uh, Bon and Melodius and everyone fucking else, apparently. <laughs> so apparently Meliodas is one of the two he thinks he killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's insinuating Rosa and I think Male. I'm not entirely certain of the timeline, but... I don't think that he knows about Male yet. He's, I'm pretty he, sure that he learned about male when male when they when the angels showed up and maybe, said that's male's power. So. Maybe he does. I guess he does say it's a ghost at first, but yeah, it seems it's, weird because he, he said because you know Meliodas says who are you saying you killed, and then when he shows up, Escanor jumps away, going ah ghost. So. I guess that adds a bit more weight to the scene, but I, I in my mind it's just like a Looney Tunes cartoon where you hit somebody with an anvil and they just get up afterwards. You just assume it happens. <laughs> Uh, so he's like, hey, you know, you're not the only monster here. In fact, every single person in this group has their share of baggage. And this moment strikes so much harder because we actually do know that everyone in this group does share some kind of level of like either personal trauma or conflict or mm-hmm. has a very troubled history. Like this isn't fairy tale where it's like all of us are weirdos in our own way. And then you find out, like, one person's like, I eat too much, and that's why I got thrown in the most, like, turned against and hated guild in the land or whatever. And you're like, Which is also the most popular guild. (laughs) Like, eat my nuts. (laughs) Uh, Escanar starts shouting. He's like, I can't control this power. I never wanted it. I hurt people. You have no idea what this curse puts me through. And Gauther uh, just straight up, like, just explains his backstory. He's like, Hey, I'm just gonna read your mind. <laughs> yeah, he's like, this curse is what drove you, the prince, out of your kingdom. Your one and only confidant, your maid Rosa, betrayed the country so that you could escape. You feel really bad about that. <laughs> he's just like, how do you know? Uh, and he's like, yeah, that's pretty much what happened. He was a, a prince in a kingdom. 
uh, his curse scared people. Rosa helped him escape, and Rosa was left behind. And they note that that country was destroyed by barbarians 20 years ago. No one knows what really happened to Rosa or anyone else since then. But since Scouther kind of pulled all that pivotal information out, Merlin's like, well, why don't you just go ask her herself? Because I'm a wizard, and with the information we got, I can just track her down easily. And Ga- Escanor seems kind of excited at first. He's like, oh, actually, forget about it. I couldn't look her in the eye right now. I, I wouldn't even know what to say to her. You know, and she went through hell because of me. She'd probably be happier if I was just dead. Uh, Bond slaps him, or rather just grabs him by the shirt and is like, quit feeling sorry for yourself, you dumb bitch. You know, if you want to die so badly, then go ahead. Uh, and Melodius calms the situation down by saying, hey, tomorrow at noon, have a match with me. If I win, you join the Seven Deadly Sins. But if you win, you can leave and do whatever you want. So we see Escanar at high noon. This is him without a mustache, which is very uncomfortable. Without a mustache, it, it just doesn't work at all. Uh, and Escanar is very happy. He's like, you could die easily. I envy you. And he's punching at Melodius around. Then Melodius actually activates all of his powers and just starts just starts clowning him, basically. And brings him down to the ground, has his hand at Escanar's throat and says, if you really want to die, then I'll snuff your life out. But because, you know, but it hurts, you know, you feel pain. That's because you're alive. You feel pain because Rosa protected you. Don't think your life is over. Thinking you can get snuffed out like that, it's nothing. It's not that it's not worth living. Uh, or thinking that it's not worth living is conceited. And Gauther starts crying and says, I still want to Escanor. live. Escanar, sorry. Uh, and Malia's like, well, if you ever can't control yourself in the future, I'll always be there to take care of you. Like, I'll always be there to stop you. And he's like, oh, I don't... I know I lost, but I do have one request. And he presumably is passed out from all the pain. And they're like, he has to meet Rosa one more time. It's actually more convenient that he's unconscious. Uh, and it was a little hard to understand exactly what happens, but Merlin used magic, basically, yeah. is the answer. Uh, yeah. I thought it was Scouther, since I don't I don't remember if this place has ever been mentioned before, but she basically uses magic to transport him into the land of dead memories or something like that in his subconscious. Rose is dead! So. <laughs> yeah, like that's the big thing that comes away. He, she, he gets to meet with Rosa and say like, oh my god, I can't believe it's you. Uh, I bet you'll be disappointed if you see me. And he's like, no, I didn't I didn't come all this way to say that. Thank you for protecting me all these years. And they share a little moment together. And she's like, you know, you've always done right by me. You're not alone. Thinks about all the new friends he has and says, hey, I'll be watching over you the whole time. And uh, they laugh and smile. She fades away into little memory globes. And uh, then we cut away to the end as like Melodius is carrying him back and they explain everything that happened. People are saying they met Elaine here early on. I do not remember that, but it probably did happen. So that's the chapter. It just kind of gives us the context for everything with Escanor, which yeah. I presume means we might actually, it, it lends weight to the idea that maybe something bad's actually going to happen to Escanor. Right. Because, you know, we have the context now for why Escanor feels as though he, his life is worth sacrificing for Meliodas. So and now he has a reason to die mm. as opposed to a reason to want to go on living. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, but this was really cool, really nice character building thing. And it gave a lot more context to who Escanor actually is as opposed to this guy who is noble deep down, but 
acts like an arrogant shit whenever his pride is in effect. Yeah. Um, and this actually shows like who he is, but he was the last sin to show up. So I guess it makes sense that he's the last one to really get a lot of weight. Aside from like Merlin, there's still a lot to go to go into with her, I think. But yeah, well, we know that she has a lot of history connected to like the main, like the big bads of the world. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess we probably have gotten as much of that as we're going to at this point. My point is we haven't really had a moment like this where we see, like, what makes her tick, yeah. essentially. And potentially maybe if there is still some payoff to the Arthur thing, maybe that's where we get it there. Yeah. Uh, but or, yeah. if, or, or if we get the next arc, Chris, seven holy virtues. I keep on saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, maybe. Uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, super satisfying. Really, really dug it. Uh, good little chapter. I don't know why it had to be a point five. That feels like a weird way to number your system because this was longer than normal chapter chapter. chris is chapter negative 87 uh (laughs) (laughs) all right uh the promised neverland chapter 152 time we actually start this chapter in a flashback um to see when uh everyone was kind of meeting up before uh don and gilda and Everybody else was there. Uh, and essentially they were planning, they were just going over like, hey, you know, so we learned about this poison that induces forced degeneration. We find out that they knew about it after we find out what that was uh, in the previous chapter. And so they're like, OK, so they've been trying to create this. They haven't been able to mass produce it yet. So if they don't have a whole ton of it, where would they use the least amount of poison possible in order to cause the most confusion? And uh, so that's why they head to the central square to find out what's going on. And they see the effects of it happening. There is a nice, uh, there is a little detail that I appreciate where Aishi, you know, goes and scouts out and then comes back to report to them saying like, yeah, it looks like it's not actually you know happening anywhere except for here. And Hyatt is like, wait a minute, Aishi can talk. <laughs> Cause that didn't come up even when they were captured. Um, but she also says that there are more and more demons that are degenerating. And so the longer they wait, the less chance that they'll have to actually be able to do anything about it. And so Mujia says, all right, we have to hurry so that we can contain the damage. And then we cut back to the fight happening between the queen and Zazie and the others. Uh, she gets caught uh, at one point. Her hand gets chained up and Zazie just goes in. Uh, his back has come off and revealing he's got some like veins on his face. Look at how hideous he is with the black square. And he's a monster now. He's a monster. He's terrifying to look at Chris. He's got veins on his face. I, yeah, I was like, I guess, I don't know. I was just, I was expecting part of his head to like be missing. Like he's got, he's got sharp fangs. I was expecting him to like not have a mouth. Like, (laughs) or or like, I guess like crazy hideous scars all over his face or like his mouth was shown up or something like that. Like, this, I was like, I guess he has to be a Zazi Daki Makara before the end of the year. Let me tell you, like, this boy is like sexy. Like, <laughs> I guess in my mind, because he reminds me of uh, I don't think you I don't know if you ever played the, the fighting game Guilty Gear, but there's a character in it called Dr. Faust. And he's like an eight foot tall doctor 
who fights with a giant scalpel and he notably wears a paper bag over his head. The whole gimmick is he's like, he doesn't take it off because his face is horribly like scarred and ruined. So in my mind, I'm really building this up like, oh my God, he lost the mask. What what kind of monster is he? And she's like, oh my God, all the blood vessels in your eyes have burst. You freak, you monster. Oh no, you, you look like a Hyuga from Naruto. Oh. <laughs> now to be fair, there might be context to this that we just don't have yet. Maybe the, 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 the black eyes are supposed to symbolize something or the veins. Like it might mean something more than that, but it definitely did feel a little underwhelming when it was like, especially when you frame the last chapter in a way where it's like the, you know, the bag, oh, the bags off. come off. We're going to see his face. And someone says like you monster die. And you're like, who could it mean? And it's like, it turns out they were saying it to the queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, he basically kills the queen. He doesn't kill her, but he cuts like most of her face off. Uh, the sword goes into her head. Eyes pop out of her skull and she falls over blood bursting out of her skull. And Chris, oh, look, we got kind of some character development for the character who just got killed. Basically, it's something that it's like ever since that interview with the uh, editor of The Promised Neverland came out, it's just kind of easier and easier to notice, like whenever a character doesn't have a whole lot of development to them. And this kind of happens here. But I know that she was more like a functional role than a character in her own right. But still, it was a little weird. Um, yeah. We find out that she was essentially driven by just ambition and greed. Uh, it, she apparently really took umbrage with blah, 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 demanding to eat more delicious meat than uh, the royal family. Uh, and I guess possibly because of her father making that deal, she decided to kill him and usurp him and uh, take the throne. Uh, I don't know. She wants to have the highest grade of meat. And that is Norman, it turns out, specifically. Uh, Norman shows up in front of her now that she's just, you know, bleeding all over the floor, unable to move. And uh, Norman's like, hey, nice to meet you, your majesty. And she recognizes him, sees that he is uh, 22194. Uh, and she actually says, like, I sent you to Lambda. I didn't want to give you to him. And she's like, I want to eat him. I want to eat you. I'm going to eat you. And she starts speaking in the demonic tongue saying, I wanted to eat you. I wanted, I wanted, I was so, I was so furious when I heard that Lando had been burned to the ground. I want you. I won't hand you to anyone else. You are my meat. And Norman stalks back to her in the demonic tongue saying, not a single one of us is your food any longer. And Zazie kills her. Just get back. Yeah. Um, so it's, pretty satisfying to see like Norman reveal like oh I know the language and this adds like kind of a cool little context to everything of like why Norman wasn't killed back when that was the thing that happened to everybody from the farm and now we have the reason why that those were all the kids that were going off to be fed to whatever the ancient one or whatever we're calling the the floating guy so his tests were so high scoring Chris so it, it makes sense like it's a cool explanation to get and it's pretty satisfying for him to have this moment, too, where she's just like, ah, I can't wait to eat you. I'm going to eat you. I won't hand you over. You're everyone's meat. And he just like he assesses her in her language. It's just like, eat shit, bitch. Eat, eat sword. <laughs> so 
Then they just turn to like the couple of like handmaids that are left along with Iverk, the uh, kind of Jafar kind of character. And they're like, if we kill him, that's it. You know, that, that's it. All the aristocrats are done. The government's done. The remaining citizens will only go extinct from here. This is, this is it. All of it will end. Everything will end. And all of them remember all the stuff that they've been through up to this point. And Norman steps forward. And we see a little shot of him, like, imagining Emma, like young Emma, behind him, tugging on his mantle. And he sees a little imagined shot of himself, the same age, looking up at him. They're both looking up with sad eyes. And Norman reacts with shock. We cut away to see Emma coming through the facility. She's she's getting through there. Uh, Ray's also with her. So I guess when they did that 15-foot leap uh, that he boosted her up into, I guess somehow then he was like, and now for me to make my way up there. <laughs> he's like, spider time. He's like, and of course, I'll easily be able to get there for my mastery of parkour. <laughs> Emma, Emma, help, help. <laughs> Emma, I parkoured too hard. I'm in the ceiling now. She's like, no, you're not, and you're on the ground. No, that's only, it's, it's the demon's illusion. I'm actually on the ceiling. You have to help me up. Down. We're actually we're actually still in Dolmo's domain, see, and a door appeared in the ceiling and I came up through the ground. But once you get me through that hole, we'll be out of there. So just do it. Stop asking questions. <laughs> and don't ask about why I'm limping afterward. <laughs> Carry me, Emma. <laughs> Give me a pickerback ride. <laughs> ow, ow, ow. You need me. I'm the moral compass of this series. No, you're not. I am. Ah, uh, well, I'm the smart one. That's Norman. Sorry. <laughs> what am I? I don't know. Your roles kind of been reduced over time. <laughs> uh, so Ray and Emma make their way and uh, they're like, oh, we've got it. We've done it. We've got to tell Norman that it's all OK, that we've made a new promise and that we don't have to fight anymore. Norman! And they see all the demon corpses <laughs> just decorating the floor at this point. Like barely a square foot left without demon bits and blood everywhere. And we see, yep, the two handmaids, they're dead. Everk's face is lying over there. And Norman turns to see Emma and Ray have arrived. Emma looks absolutely shocked and horrified. And Norman says, too bad. You didn't make it in time, Emma. Um, I really like the very end of this chapter and also the bit a couple pages before the end. The shot of Norman imagining his young, innocent self and Emma wanting him to stop and then doing it anyway is really good. Uh, and no dialogue necessary, no monologue, no lines. Just you, you get everything you need out of those few shots. And despite being a series that supposedly doesn't focus itself on character development so much as telling a good story, that's some really good stuff right there. So. Mm -hmm. I agree. I liked it a lot. I think the chapter was super strong. Um, I think there, like, I just kind of like the delivery of it, this big moment, the feeling of like building up to this climax of the heroes arriving just too late to kind of stop everything. You know, it feels very harsh considering promise neverland the heroes usually tend to kind of succeed now they've been slowly taking more l's at least in minor ways as the series has progressed but it mm -hmm. still feels really big to get get to this point and emma wasn't able to succeed you know maybe there was a moment of of hope where you're like oh that moment meant that 
Norman would maybe come to his senses, but it didn't. And uh, he killed everybody. Or I don't know. Maybe he ordered somebody to kill everybody. Um, it's uh, going to be interesting to see where where we go from here, because now basically the demon antagonists are all done. Like there's none left. <laughs> like really? Yeah. We, at least we don't really know of any, um, mm-hmm. I suppose there is still the general populace of the demon kingdom right. and, uh, you know, minor Lords and things like that, presumably still out there to, to contend with, but, uh, nobody's super big. I guess there's the Ratchery clan still. Right. Um, uh, so there's there's some element of I guess like kind of the 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 mediator side of things to to perhaps get into, and of, but and of course they're going they're they've got to stop Norman's forces from killing uh, Sanju and Mujika. So, but Nick, don't you mean Sanju and Bujika? Okay, fine. <laughs> got it. Really good chapter in terms of like implications for the future, and I'm really excited to see where it goes. So, absolutely. All right, let's talk about Bulak Clover, page 222, just between us. You can't stop me, Nick. I'm the one doing this. <laughs> hey, look, Chris, What what's that Pokemon that Dorothy's riding on? Is that a Boosharna? Isn't it just Boona? It's uh, one is the evolved form. I believe Musharna is an evolved form of Muna. I thought Muna was the evolved form. I don't know. It was always a lame Pokemon I never really gave a fuck about. We it has have, to do with like Japanese folklore. Or something we already like have a drowsy. All right, stop trying to be drowsy too. God damn it! You can't. You don't evolve into some cre- super creepy Pokemon that kidnaps children and it's just like <laughs> not stopped. Oh no! A hypno took my my kid. Oh well. <laughs> like those oh, wacky Pokemon. I hope some kid catches that hypno and then brings my child back to me. What? No, I didn't bring any children back. Anyway, I'm going to put this hypno on my PC and never use him. <laughs> yeah. I just used him to to get through a fucking Coca's gym. It's like, I guess that works. Uh, all right. So last chapter, we saw Dorothy Unsworth uh, and the God, I'm blanking her. Noelle. Sorry. Noelle showing up to talk to her about her devil powers. I'm not entirely certain. About her mom. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain why she goes to Dorothy. Like, it makes sense in the context we find out afterwards, but all of that seems to come as a surprise to Noelle. So I'd like to think that she put her hand into, like, a fishbowl full of names and was like, I shall talk to my mother, too. Jack the Ripper. Mm. She goes back in. She's I don't like, know if he's going to be super helpful. <laughs> she's like, Mulligan, and goes back into the bowl. What, actually, what we don't, what we actually see is that, because... Uh, Jack the Ripper was also part of like the cleanup team. So she was actually just going to ask Dorothy where to find Jack. <laughs> She's like, where do I find? But me, don't you mean Jack the Ripper? Wait. Wait. <laughs> we need to talk more about how Jack the Ripper is one of the captains here. <laughs> uh, yeah, can you like, hey, uh, Captain Dorothy, can you tell me where to find? <laughs> yeah, just like sticking her finger into her mouth the whole way through eventually. She's like, didn't Nozelle tell you? That's something you mustn't mention, or you'll get yourself cursed. And then she takes what, them both. The <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she uh, teleports both of them inside the dream world, and 
gives like a whole explanation about this place, how she's like, eh, it's a place where I could do everything. She poofs up some tea, uh, you know, says like, oh, I usually trap bad people here, but sometimes I put buildings and injured people in here like today. And uh, she's sipping tea and she's like, oh, wow, this tea is pretty good. And you, you do anything in this place. It's crazy. It's like, hey, no, Will. And it's asked. And she's like, why are you here? Where is she with Captain Yami? He's like, shut up. Never mind that. You're so cute today, Noelle. Just like always. I want to look at you forever. And shockingly, Noelle doesn't scream for five straight pages and run straight out of the dream world. She just has one exaggerated reaction. And then Dorothy's like, oh, I made that boy because he's on your mind. And uh, I do enjoy it because Noelle immediately like, slaps it, like shoots him away with magic. And she, uh, she's just like, no, he isn't. <laughs> she's like, wait, no, that was the real one. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm oh. And she's like, yeah, you know, maybe you came here for his sake as well. She's like, absolutely not. She's like, well, this is the place, the perfect place for secret chats. And she creates a dream version of Nozelle, which I guess like she's like, she's very clear. It's not actually Nozelle. It's a Nozelle pulled out of my imagination, but who also knows everything. So I guess she has some level of knowledge of all this already. Yeah, it's an odd they have to do this kind of um they explain the like I can't explain this, so I have to cheat basically. Yeah. Uh because the explanation is that her their mother uh Asier Silver, I'm not sure how to actually pronounce that. Uh but it doesn't matter because she's dead, never coming back. Uh lost her life to a curse from a certain devil and Noelle's like, why Why didn't Nozelle ever tell me? And they're like, oh, well, that's because they had a very specific magic that says the lives of those who speak of it are eroded in the same way. That was the type of curse that afflicted your mother. So Nozelle knew this and has always kept quiet to his siblings about it. And that's why he's kind of always distant about these sort of things. Sort of like trying to take what would be like kind of an obnoxious character trait and try to force some like real world magical reason for why he is the way he is on top of it. Like he doesn't talk about this because if he does that Freddy Krueger gets his power back, it'll kill you in the real world or something like that. You know, like, all right, I guess if he needed to get to this place, I mean, that's only one very specific topic that he can't talk about though. And it seems to have seeped into the rest of his behavior too. So I guess the idea being he's taken on that difficult responsibility and as such, everything kind of, yeah. He's grown cold. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And she's like, yeah, this place, which is cut off from the outside world, is the only place that we can discuss it. He's like, it's taken me too long to confide in you, Noelle. I didn't want to put you in any danger. And they're about to share like a sweet kind of sibling moment. And then he starts rubbing her in the face. He's like, oh, my Noel, my sweet little Noel. And she blasts him away with a water dragon. Um, I like how he that gets like a, a more exactly. uh, a bigger reaction yeah. than Asta going over her. So it's just like even weirder for her for her brother to fawn over her. So yeah. and uh, there's a moment where it's like. She's like, oh, I, I thought, you know, that's what it seems like he is to me, you know. And like the real Nozelle gets like a shiver where he is in the real world. Sort of like someone back talking you when you sneeze. Uh, and she's like, well, now that you set Nozelle flying, let's get back to the subject at hand. 
Normally, demons can't appear in our world. They can only come in by, like, forbidden contracts, someone paying a prize, using, like, a portal, and they're usually limited. But that's it. Or at least that's how it should be. But right now, their shadows are crawling through our world. And the one responsible for my mother's death and the key to saving Asta, that devil's name is Megacula. I'm sorry. It sounds like it sounds like a drink from the '90s. <laughs> hey Make kids, you know the only drink that that quenches Slimer's thirst? Mega Cooler. <laughs> what do you have to say about it, Huey, Dewey, and Louie? Wow, delicious! Uh, <laughs> like oh it's God. every cool uh, '90s character. <laughs> what about you, Michelangelo? Oh, radical. You know what I enjoy drinking this with? The Tasmanian Devil. Mega Cola. I completely forgot about how weirdly popular the Tasmanian Devil was. In the o- 90s. Only when he was wearing baggy pants and a backwards baseball cap on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to this day, I still can't explain why gangster Looney Tunes were like a popular trend in the nineties. But fuck if they were. Oh man. Um I actually quite like this chapter. Um there's, you know, a little bit of of uh, comic relief and that's a little bit weird, but the jokes themselves are pretty all right. I like, you know, the very that we're just at the point where like it's blatantly obvious that Noel has a crush on Asta that even this captain that she's had like zero lines exchanged with pretty much. It's just like, yeah, I conjured up this boy, this version of a boy who, who you're into that would like you. And she's just like, no! And then blasts it away and is in denial and stuff. Uh, cute, cute joke. Uh, her brother, who's usually so called to her, is haunting over her. Uh, it freaks around. She blasts it away. Um, but more importantly than that, uh, the fact that this coming arc has actually got like proper setup going into it establishing the stakes, some lore, uh, getting side characters involved and wanting to find stuff out who are invested in what's going to happen to Asta. This is all really good stuff that I really appreciate because Black Clover has, like, never done this before. Uh, I think that the closest thing that we had uh, that has happened with this was the time that they had to go and get, like, the blood curse removed from Asta. And that involved essentially them being like, we're going to see a witch now. And that was it. Yeah. Um, this is actually like, well, okay. Don't forget those very pivotal short story characters or light novel characters. Uh, <laughs> no introduction in the manga beyond like, hey, it's those guys that we learned about in that one adventure in this novel. <laughs> I hate that. Um, so I really like this uh, right now. And I'm actually quite optimistic about the uh, adventure that uh, awaits Asta and company. So. All right. One Piece, chapter 957, Ultimate. Uh, we start the. This is an odd chapter, Chris. Mm-hmm. This is an exposition dump chapter, if there ever was one. <laughs> it's a. Like, they, they. So these chapters exist in the series. They've kind of been there. There was the one that revealed that, like, Ace was actually Gold Roger's kid. And there was, like, another, like, the wife whose name I can't remember. Uh, but there were like these small chapters that kind of exist where they do these things. This one was very strange since it was framed 
almost entirely around bounty numbers. <laughs> like that we get like details before that, but then like the last half of it is like, and here was this number, and here was this number, and here was this number. And I'm like, all right, cool, I guess. There were about five pages straight in this that were just entirely around. Look at how big this number is. Um, and that's about it. And I guess it is to put context into because they do eventually make the point of if uh, Big Mom and Kaido do join up, then they will together be a more formidable force than Whitebeard and Gold Roger independently were uh, because their combined armies and power levels and reputations will be joining together for this. Uh, that's it. That's why we get all this. But there's some other stuff that gets established as well. Um, at first, we see this conversation taking place between. Uh, oh, my God. I always screw his name up. Oh, Akainu. Yeah. Akainu and Fujitora over uh, a, a transponder snail. They're talking about, you know, the seven warlords being uh, abolished. And uh, Akinu says, like, yeah, I was against the decision, but I can't really overrule it. Um, and Fujitora says, well, you talk about necessary sacrifices to keep the warlords going, but you only say such a thing because you've never been one of them. And which is an odd comment to make. Hmm. But he also says, let's just put our trust in it in SSG to do its job. No doubt the world's power balance is about to make a major change. Uh <laughs> So then they talk about Kaido and Big Mom joining up and they're like, my word, it's the return of rocks. What's rocks? Well, we'll find out. So, but, you know, Akinu just says it's just the latest disaster. You know, two of the emperors teaming up at all times. It has to be now. So we see this that there is kind of like a classroom almost being led uh, right now by uh, guest speaker. <laughs> Uh, Sengoku, who is going over this stuff. And the first thing that they go over is rocks. The fact that, uh, yeah, back in the day, Kaido and Big Mom and Whitebeard were all part of the same crew under Captain Rocks. They were the Rocks Pirates. And so they're like, oh, that's ridiculous that these people who end up becoming so powerful were, you know, all part of the same crew. And uh, he's like, oh, no, it's not just that. You know, there were also other people who went on to carve a, a name for themselves in history. The Golden Lion, the Silver Axe, Captain John, Wang Ji, uh, all these important people. And their Captain Rocks was one of the people who was trying to become king of the world. Uh, they were a terrorist organization, basically, who directly opposed the world government. But... Everyone had heard of the threat they proposed. This is due to a fateful event 38 years ago at God Valley. The Rocks Pirates, the strongest crew in the world, were wiped out at an island called God Valley, according to news reports. A rampaging force of evil that none had been able to stop had been taken down by a Navy vice admiral by the name of Garp. His name was heard across the world, and he was soon called a naval hero. So, hmm. So I wanted to try to see, because he dropped some names there, and the only one that mm -hmm. I, I specifically knew was the Golden Lion was Shiki. The, uh, he was like the right, one from the, Strong the World. Right, the one movie, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
which actually did a tie-in chapter previously to make a canon universe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem that Silver Axe or Wang Ji are specifically anybody yet. Uh, but Captain John was apparently one of the corpses that Hogback resurrected that he made one of his lieutenants. Hmm. I don't remember this at all, but it was a long time ago and there were a lot of corpses. So (laughs) So, it'll be interesting if those other two characters show up in some fashion or if they might just be Mm -hmm. details to like add more to it, tied in with ones we do know. Yeah. Uh, so Sengoku is going over this to all these guys who are basically, I guess just too young to remember this kind of thing. Uh, and also a lot of it is not really reported very widely. Uh, Garp, um, basically, the, re- the, the reason this was never reported is that he had to work with pirates to win the battle. And so and the other reason is that he protected celestial dragons in doing so. And so one of the people there is like, well, shouldn't it be, you know, a naval officer's duty to protect those celestial dragons? And Sengoku says Garp's moral compass spares no room for such a duty. The reason Garp has always refused to take an admiral's position is because it would place him directly beneath the Celestial Dragon's command. It's only his accomplishments and stature that keep him from being eliminated for this insubordination. In short, this is the truth. In order to protect Celestial Dragons and their slaves at God Valley, Garp joined forces with Roger there at the island, and they broke apart the Rock's pirates. That is the God Valley incident. So... Yeah, Chris, I mean, you were talking about last week about you know, people were like, oh, my God, this chapter of One Piece with Zoro and stuff. Is like, yeah, this seems like more important groundbreaking information. <laughs> to be fair, this this chapter did trend as well. Um, On the wrong day. Thanks. Well, for... yeah, it's it's been tr- like chapters have been trending the last couple weeks now. Um, mm. So it makes sense, I guess, why this one did trend. But I thought Jeff had a pretty good point where he's like, you know, it'd probably be better if everyone just read the chapter at the same time so we could actually get it like trending worldwide at a high spot when something really crazy happens instead of these weird yeah. blip chapters. Uh, so this all happens and then <laughs> Sengoku is like, so um, the island the world government wanted to hide, the island that the world government wanted to hide, you know, it just vanished. Like the actual island where this important event took place vanished because they wanted to no one to know about gold Roger and Garp working together. Do you still want to hear more about it? And they're like, yes. <laughs> I do. I love this because this entire chapter is framed as like Sengoku giving a big explanation. And he kind of is just like, so here's the detail. I guess while we're all here, let me elaborate on this too. Uh, and then here's other pertinent information. <laughs> you know what? Fuck it. I'm already showing you these bounties. Let's show you these ones as well. <laughs> I'm like, all right, sure. He's just like, the professor doesn't have anything prepared. So he's just like, here's everything I had for the entire semester. Here you go. <laughs> he's like, I don't really know if this is that super pertinent, but here's fucking white beard and gold rogers bounties too. And uh, Rox also had a parrot. Its name was Scuffles. <laughs> Didn't really do anything, but he had a parrot named Scuffles. That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> I, I got some pictures of me on vacation. I guess you guys should check that out too. <laughs> look at me. Don't I look sexy? <laughs> Here's me at the beach. Uh, I thought that swimsuit wasn't very flattering on me, but I've been told by other people that's not the case. Uh, I would like everybody here to weigh in on this because I, I, I'm having an argument. I need to and find be out. honest with me. Do not pull punches just because I'm your superior officer. And also I could grow really big and crush you under my toe. <laughs> Wait a minute. The first comment I got says I'm fat. Who was that? I'm going to boot a punch you. 
I'll kill whoever said that. <laughs> anyway, we got an opening in the class now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, there's some coffee. Anyone else want to be to tell you all this really super secret information the government doesn't want you to know? <laughs> so here's me in this sling, in this sling <laughs> bikini. I thought it was uh, a little cold for it, but you know. So also, sacrifice. I did no manscaping ahead of time, so <laughs> didn't know it was a thing. So, boy, do I look awkward there! Oh, yeah. thank, thank. Who brought this goat in? Thank you. I love goats. <laughs> but, you know what they say uh, from an, ep- uh, <laughs> an issue of Hustler that I read thirty years ago. They say Bush is back. So, <laughs> Bush is back, baby. I don't know if it was a thing of Sengoku's character that he likes goats, but there is a goat there with him that he's just like, oh, a goat. <laughs> I, I, I will know. That, that is the thing of his. He's been seen with goats in his previous Okay, yeah. okay. It's adorable because there's just this this goat with this just derpy face with beady eyes. I'm, I'm yeah. here. He's just like, oh, a goat. Yeah, he has a, a pet goat. goat. Uh, so... Sengoku says because Rox was so ambitious in his pursuit of being king of the world, he broke too many of the world's taboos. There's no information in the public about the Rox pirates. It's he was so bad that they're just like, no, no one not to be taught in history. They exist only in the memories of a few soldiers in our old generation. So there's your explanation for why we haven't heard about this before. Only like Garp Garp's age. People know about this stuff. Uh and so they talk about it's hard to imagine one man leading three of the four emperors as we know them today. And Sengoku says, well, he was Roger's first foe, perhaps his greatest. The captain was typically only known as Rox, but his full name was Rox D. Zebek, one of those rare pirates with the initial of D, though he is no longer alive to speak of it. Uh, so what we can glean from this is that uh, somewhere out there, there was a character called Beck, B-E-C. And they fell to the heartless. And there's nobody <laughs> has now taken over. Well, you, it, it adds a Z, right? No, it adds an X. It always adds an X. Like Roxas with yeah. So wouldn't his name have been Beak then? Well, you rearranged the letters. So okay. it's not, you don't want to be obvious, Dick. Everyone's going to look at Roxas and just be like, well, it is. You know, come on. You got you to gotta mix the letters around, which <laughs> I don't think was always the plan because there's definitely some really stupid names afterwards. You're like, well, I, I was Zero before, but now I'm just Ra or something like that. You're like, I was Apuku before now. Like, oh, your name sounded a lot better when you mixed it up and threw an X in there. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, they, they, they established like, so this alliance here of Kaido and Big Mom, they served on the same ship before, but that was 38 years ago. They're nothing like they are, they were back then. But if this alliance is true, it is the birth of the most dangerous pirate crew in the world. And then they bring up all the bounties and stuff like that, pointing out, Hey, let's go over some of the important stuff. And they just talk over, like, let's talk about the four emperors, what their bounties are. Uh, Blackbeard just became uh, one of the four emperors a year ago. He is at like two point two billion, roughly two hundred fifty million uh, berries. Uh, then there's Shanks, who's got a, a bounty of just over four billion. Uh, Big Mom has like four point four billion. Kaido has four point six billion. And then the two highest bounties that have ever there have ever been in history belong to Whitebeard at just over five billion and Gold Roger at just over five and a half billion. So the fact that Luffy broke into that billion bounty club 
is kind of meaningful in that regard. It kind of puts you on a scale of like this is the highest that it's ever been. And of course, they establish that, yes, Big Mom and Kaido are still pretty long, way, long ways away from having a, a bounty uh, that would eclipse uh, Whitebeard or uh, Gold Roger. But if you put them together, then they're close to twice as reputable as mm. either of them. So that's why this is such a big deal in very just like putting in just numbers to let you know. So I do actually kind of appreciate the whole bounty concept a lot more than a power level thing. Cause bounty does not mean strength in mission and potentially big a deal of someone getting involved in stuff. So yeah, there's, there's sort of this weird place where we're meant to kind of equate bounty level with power because if you're mm-hmm. that strong, that means you're that like, wanted because you could cause that much more destruction or whatever mm-hmm. but we also know it's not a one-for-one ratio because chopper's only like 50 or i think it went up a little bit but it's like 100 now yeah so like <laughs> yeah. it's it's a pretty small amount so you're not meant to take it super literally but here we are enough one piece has sort of played with the idea of like power level stuff before there was um doku ray or whatever it was the power level that the cp9 used to gauge things and mm-hmm. I liked the execution there because it was used to tell a couple stories, like how Jayabor was the strongest, but by the time that they met again, Kaku had surpassed him, and that created like kind of a rivalry between them, and kind of added it to the idea of, like the Soro Zandri, they're super close kind of idea. So if they do it right, it's not so bad or annoyable mm-hmm. or annoying. Akainu bursts into the class, uh, saying that they're not going near Wano because they don't have the manpower to deal with stuff. And Sengoku says, well, I, I don't really want to interfere in this either, but I am providing these soldiers with some of the wisdom of experience. Uh, so that what they do with that knowledge is up to them. You have, But you have to know history in order to know this stuff. Speaking of which, I believe there was a pirate of Wano beloved by Whitebeard, Roger, and Redhair. Now, Akinu knows he's talking about Kozuki Odin, the man who was a commander under Whitebeard years ago. Odin was later recruited by Roger, coming to the King of the Pirates on his final voyage. While I can't imagine that Odin has any connection to all of this, it doesn't strike me as coincidental that all of these great figures should have such close ties to the land of Wano Sakazuki. So, a little bit there of just like, there is something going on with this with this whole Wano arc that relates to everything else, and that is why Kaido and Big Mom and everyone have been involved in it. At first, when we learned about this, it did seem more like it was going to be like kind of a standalone adventure when it was first brought up. But it turns out, no, this is probably going to have some far reaching consequences. What goes on goes on in this area. So. But yeah, that's the chapter of One Piece this week. It was an odd chapter that had a lot of information to gleam to uh, sift through. But uh, there was some interesting stuff in it, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, we, we get some cool details in here. Um I think more than anything, what I enjoy is that the end of this is meant to make Wano a bigger deal. Really getting this impression that this is a huge arc. This isn't just like, here's the step up from Dressrosa and Doflamingo. It's like, oh, here's the gigantic fucking leap forward from one of the seven lords to potentially two of the emperors who combined power might be even more dangerous than Gold Rogers in his prime. And it all ties back to this character 
who was also sort of like tied into all this ancient pirate lore and this land that we don't get involved with. Like there's a lot of moving pieces in Wano and I'm glad that these, it feels like they're pulling the audience's attention away just because this is the stuff that like one piece fans have been kind of waiting to learn for like, you know, 15 years or whatever. But narratively they're pulling the attention back to Wano to be like, Wano is the big deal right now. There's a lot going on there. Like, let's focus on that. Yes. All right. That's going to do it for this week, guys. Uh, we will name our favorites now. Uh, I'm going to give my favorite chapter of the week to The Promised Neverland. I really, really like that chapter, and the way it ended really set up something pretty cool and exciting that I'm looking forward to next week a lot. Full agreement. Uh, got me really pumped to see where things go because, hey, this whole thing with opposing the demons, that plot thread is expired now. Now we have to move on to another thing, deal with the consequences of stuff. And uh, we also have that really cool moment of uh, Norman looking back on his innocence and being like, nope, got to do this. So, uh, And my character of the week, I'm going to give to Escanar from Seven Deadly Sins. I thought it was a really cool chapter for him. Made me like him a lot more. Also made me like Melodius a lot more, too, because I did like his speech. But... It was a really cool chapter for him. Uh, I have to think about this a little bit. I don't know. I, I mean, you make some good points about Escanor, but I don't know. It didn't quite have the same effect on me. Um, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to give it to Gen okay. on Dr. Stone for uh, the just the various different emotions that he went through in, in it. Uh, the, you know, kind of scheming, the triumph, and then everything deflating and you seeing just how freaking terrified he was during the entire encounter. So that makes sense. Um, and for the, the audience, their character of the week was Gen for Dr. Stone. I agreed with you. Uh, chapter of the week was act age, which we didn't cover this week. We are going to start covering it soon. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I guess we won't specifically know why this chapter was good right now. <laughs> Apparently the audience really liked it. Although it was all over the place. There were a lot of votes for chainsaw man for one piece for Dr. Stone, seven Ellie sins. So, a lot of different votes this week, but Act Age was the one that won. Yes. All right. And that is going to do it for Week Manga Recap, guys. I want to thank you all for joining us. You're on Smashcast.tv slash RolloT. Twitch.tv slash RolloT. We record the show sometime around 7.30 to 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and it's still Halloween month, Chris. So the He's, recommendation. Uh, do you mean Spookmaster General? Yes, Spookmaster General. I've been calling you Chris this entire time. How rude of me. Uh I'll haunt your dreams and drop maggots in your mouth while you sleep. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that will be my revenge. <laughs> it's fine. It'll be cool. The series that we're going to be talking about uh, next time, or possibly the time after that, is actually one that I had heard about before. Um, my girlfriend actually uh, discovered this before I did, and so when I saw it, saw it in the recommendations, they caught my attention. Happy Sugar Life is the manga that we'll be covering next time. Has to deal with a Yandere kind of girl, the twist being that the target of her affections is a sweet, innocent little child whom she desperately wants to protect, even if it means killing people. So that is what we will be talking about soon. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Dipomar Podcast for the official podcast account at RolloT at Nick F Time for your two hosts. You can check out our past episodes on weeklymongerecap.podbean.com as well as on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to send us feedback, ask questions for Q&A episodes, suggest future manga for us to read, all that stuff. You can go uh, through our email, weeklymongerecap.yahoo.com, or through our Discord server. Be sure to check out the spreadsheet that Ninja X3I maintains that 
tracks all the stuff that we have talked about on the show, could potentially talk about in the future, chime in on what we want to uh, be nominated for the supplemental awards at the end of the year and that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, good stuff on there. Special thanks go out to NGX3i as well as uh, Steve Mann, uh, who has a number of different websites you can check out his artwork at. Infamous Plant for uh, the stuff that you do to help us out. Milo da- Jack Stillitz, check out the SoundCloud and Winsdale Cheddar, youtube.com slash Winsdale Cheddar. They made the opening sequence for us. And uh, that's going to do it. Also, special thanks to our Patreon supporters. We appreciate you for letting us put out stuff. That's going to do it. Now, Nick. Now, what, what, hor- what horrors will be able to present itself to us next week? For truly, do we not live in the most horrifying reality of all when our president is making Nickelback <laughs> meme tweets now for the public? <sighs> Can one really experience a nightmare when the waking part of our day is already so horrifying? <laughs> <laughs>